Welcome to Hack Stack Level 2. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to take your life to greater heights and deeper fulfillment. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of episodes 1 through 11. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Oh, yes, indeed. Let's start hacking. Uh, Really excited. I think I say that pretty much every episode, but this particular case, it's extra true because when I first started uh, this podcast, the concept in my head, I thought, you know, someday I am going to play uh, what I am about to play for you guys because it made such a big difference in my life. So we've already gone over the uh, what I call the basic foundation, the basic training, those episode uh, 1 through 11. And I have a feeling that this episode is going to potentially generate a lot of buzz because even people that haven't listened to the prior episodes, uh, I think they'll still get a lot out of this. And it's the first episode that I would consider a standalone episode. So even if you've heard none of the other episodes, uh, this will still be very, very beneficial. And and I know it's crazy. Some people aren't into goal setting and achieving their dreams and lowering their stress level and being really efficient with their life. Uh, <laughs> but for everybody else uh, that that's not interesting to, uh, they can just hop into this episode and listen to this because this will probably touch on most people's life, uh, if not now, at some point in the future. Now, with these standalone episodes, I could have covered a a host of different topics, namely each of the five Fs. You've got um, fitness, finances, family, friends, and faith. Those are the the broad categories that we like to talk about on this show. And at first, I was thinking, you know, the the first topic that everyone seems to have issues with is their finances, Uh, especially when it comes to couples and finances. It seems to be like the number one issue that couples tend to fight over, always fighting over money. Uh, but but I found, you know, a lot of people think, well, if there's more money, there would be less fighting. But I'm, I'm pretty sure whether someone's living, whether a couple's living below the poverty line, they'll fight about money. And whether someone's in the upper 1% in the world of wealth and they're married and they're a couple, probably could still fight about money. So I, I don't know. Sometimes I think that fighting about money is more of a symptom of underlying issues that that need to be resolved. So as I often do on this show, I'm going to start off with a a little curveball. And I'm not going to cover finances or money for for at least a few episodes. I'm going to start with family. So of all the five Fs, family is the one that if you can get a really strong foundation there, I think all the other things, all the other areas uh, start to fall into place. So on this episode, we are going to cover parenting hacks, the cream of the crop sort of parenting hacks, the stuff that you're not doing that you probably should be doing, or at the very least, maybe doing better. And all of this is going to be common sense driven. So if you have kids between the ages of three and 10 years old, this is the show for you. This is dead on bullseye directed at you. And this is going to be a tremendous benefit for you. So I mentioned on the last show though, what if you do not have kids period, or what if you do not have kids in that uh, age range? And I'm going to tell you right now why you still need to listen to this. First off, if you're single, 
and you someday want to have kids, you definitely want to remember the concepts covered in this show so you do not repeat some of the mistakes that (laughs) some of us newbie parents tend to make. And it's often been said, the only time you know everything about parenting is when you're single and you don't have kids. And you can just look into the (laughs) the situation of other people and you know exactly what you would do in that situation. And I'm sure everything would work out out fine if you were at the parenting helm. Uh, So when you're single, everything seems a little bit easy. And then you actually have kids and reality sets in and sometimes things don't go as smoothly as you like. So if you're single or don't have kids and you someday think you might, this is a good show for you to listen to. If you happen to have kids that are older than, say, 10, 11 years old, you still want to listen to this show because the speaker that's going to be the lion's share of this show, um, he's just got a really unique common sense take approach to parenting. And I want him to sort of earn credibility with you. And if you think what he says is valuable, he's got different books on all sorts of different topics of parenting. So like how to, how to improve your relationship with your teenager or how to deal with those teenage years. So this could parlay into something that could be really, really beneficial to you. And finally, if you don't have kids and don't plan on having kids or uh, say there's, I know there's some painful situations out there where, where people want kids and they don't have that ability for, for various reasons. Maybe someday you'll adopt and you can use some of these techniques. Or better yet, I bet you know someone that does have kids in this, this age range, three to 10 years old, or they, they soon will be. And you can actually start to think about other people and some of the things that they may need. And you can recommend this particular show to them because this could be helpful to them so here's the the really cool thing about doing this show okay so let me back up a little bit there's really two reasons i do this show uh the first reason is for selfish reasons so when i talk about all these concepts you know at some point i sort of have to listen to my own advice Uh, for example right now it is monday night and i'm recording this show and i tell you what I really, really wanted to watch uh, the Indianapolis Colts play Monday night football. And I'm about to sit down and watch them play. And I think about what the hip hop preacher said back in episode two, right? Some of you guys like Monday night football more than success, or he said something along those lines. So I actually play that on my show. And then here I am in that exact situation. And I could be doing something positive or I could be watching football. So guess what? I have to follow my own advice and I have to not watch football and and get this podcast out there because it's something I want to do. I think it's something that's helpful. So not only do I I hold myself accountable, but that brings me to the second reason. I'm also trying to uh, help other people out, uh, give them some uh, little pieces of wisdom that they can use in their life, sort of pay it forward, right? So um, this show takes time and effort and I, and I like doing it. It's a labor of love, but the, the real benefit is trying to help others out. So even if you don't have kids, if you think of someone else that could benefit from this and, and pay it forward, if you listen to this show and it seems like some of the information, man, that's, that's pretty good. That seems like really good parenting advice. Share that with someone that you think could actually use it and it, it could potentially make a really big difference in, in their life. And it definitely made a big difference in my life. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. 
But what I'm going to do right now is take a little break, and I am going to play a summary of an audiobook that was just on the last show. It's called Eat That Frog, uh, 21 Steps to Stopping Procrastination. Really good book. Uh, deals with an issue that most humans on the planet struggle with, procrastinating, you know, not doing what they know they should be doing. Really quick audiobook. I think it's just a few hours, two or three hours. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, I said the number one thing that you can do to, to help increase your productivity, my take on it was to plan your day ahead. If you always have a solid plan, that makes life a whole lot easier. But what I'm going to play right now is someone else's take on that book. And it's basically a really, really quick summary of Eat That Frog and the really good takeaways from that book. And it's done by Brian Johnson, who is, uh, he's got a blog and YouTube channel, The Philosopher Notes, and he was interviewed on our fitness hack show. So it's pretty cool that he was interviewed on the show and it also ties into a book that we just finished. So I'm going to play this quick little clip just as a, a refresher uh, for the people that have already listened. And if you've never listened to this show, maybe this will spark your interest to maybe check out a few of the prior episodes. So let's uh, warm up with this clip real quick. Hi, this is Brian. Welcome back to another micro class. This one is on your number one goal. It's inspired by Brian Tracy's Eat That Frog. we got the philosopher's note on it below. Goals, Brian Tracy says, are extraordinarily important. Why? Because they add clarity. He says, if you want to eat that frog, the way that you need to start is by setting the table. You do that by setting good goals. This is echoed by all the great teachers. Piers Steele says the same thing. You want to deal with procrastination and increase your motivation, you need to work this formula, right? His formula is expectancy times value divided by impulsiveness times delay. Expectancy is goals, essentially. You're excited about creating great things in your life. Now, here's what's cool. Brian Tracy says, if you want to eat that frog and determine what the most important thing is for you to do that day, you need to know what your number one goal is, right? And here's one way to get there. Bust out a piece of paper, blank sheet of paper, and write down your top goals. One, two, three, all the way down to 10. What are your top 10 goals for the next year? Right, so I'm recording this and it's now August 2015. So I'm thinking about when I did this exercise, 2016, end of next year, 16 months, what do I wanna achieve? What are my top 10 goals that I want to achieve, write them down. Look at them, get excited about them. Imagine your life with these complete. He says, write them down in the first person positive. I have, insert the blank, right? I make this much money or I've created this much stuff or I weigh this much weight. What are your top goals, right? You look at that and then you say, what's my number one goal? What out of those 10 goals, if I achieve just one goal, which of those goals would have the most positive benefit in my life? The most positive impact in the rest of my life? That's a really powerful thing to know. And then he says, when you know that number one goal, then you want to create a whole nother piece of paper, right? M write it down. This is my goal. And then write down the action steps you're going to take to execute it and then go get to work. And then guess what? Work on it every single day. How do you do that? By identifying the number one thing that you can do day in and day out. He wrote a whole book on it and he said, eat that frog. That's how you identify 
how to go about eating frogs. Goals provide clarity. Here are your top 10 for the next year. Here's your number one. And then here's the thing you're going to do today that's going to support your achievement of that big goal, which is going to change your life. There you go. Hope you enjoyed. What's your number one goal? Okay, so that was Brian Johnson's quick take on Eat That Frog. Basically, the Pareto principles of goals. What's that number one goal that will make a huge difference in your life? And what can you do to start to accomplish that goal? And if the concept Pareto principle is new to you, uh, check out some of the prior episodes. And we go over that in detail. And it's a very helpful technique. But now, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode we are going to listen to a lecture by John Rosemond. So let me tell you how I came across these lectures that you're you're about to listen to. A few years ago, I was having some some real issues uh, with with my my kids. In particular, my uh, oldest son, who I believe was like five years old at the time. So this is about you know three, maybe maybe four years ago. And he was just a nightmare to deal with. You know, he was having trouble at school. Um, One of the teachers said that, hey, we think he has, you know, ADD. You might want to have him checked out, put on some medication. And, you know, I I didn't want to be the the naive parent and say, you know, hey, not my kid. You know, no way I'm putting him on medication. You know, if if the kid needs it, I I was more than willing to do that. But at the same time, I was like, man, this, this this kid's only five years old. Isn't like being hyper and not paying attention, isn't that somewhat normal for a five-year-old? And me and my wife, you know, we're kind of struggling with what to do. What, you know, what should we do? Should we pull him out of school? And I was like, you know, let's just pull him out and give him a couple of years and, and, you know, we'll put him back in. And if he, if he still has problems at that point, then, then maybe we'll try medication as a last resort. And, you know, as we're wrestling with, with these decisions, I see a, a Facebook post by my, my sister-in-law and she just posted, hey, this is a really good read. You should check it out. And I mean, it wasn't specifically geared toward me, um, but given my circumstance, I was really interested in it. And it was a book called The Well-Behaved Child uh, by Dr. John Rosemond. Now, I had read a lot of parenting books and there's some conflicting advice and I, I never really gravitated toward one style or another nothing nothing really seemed to help but I was I was sort of in a, a somewhat of a desperate situation so I decided to give this this book a read and I, I look it up on Amazon and, and wouldn't you know it's not on audible so I'm like are you kidding me am I actually gonna have to read a book you know that that's it's funny you know how how silly that sounds you know parents Parent, there's no lack of desire in parents. You know, parents would take a bullet for their child and they'd do anything for their children. And then here it is like, I just need to read a book. And I'm like, eh, man, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and read a book. And I, and I started to read it. And I'm like, you know what? And that's when I discovered the, uh, the Kindle hack where, where, the, where you can do the, the text-to-speech and your Kindle will read to you. So, I don't know, long story short, if you, if you listen to episode one, you figure out how I do that. But I basically made a homemade audiobook, so I was able to, to get through that book. But it was just, just mind-blowing. And I, I used some of those techniques. I, I put them into practice, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that after, afterwards. But I was so impressed with, with what was written, I, I just kind of went searching to see what was out there. And it turns out that this John Roseman 
gave a few lectures, ironically, in my home city of Indianapolis. So, so these are the lectures that I want to play for you. They're, they're outstanding. I, I hope you enjoyed them as much as I do. Um, but, but I really want this to just parlay to be, you know, step one of two. And, and step two is to read some of his books. So if he gains any sort of credibility with you through these lectures, I, I'm going to recommend some books for you afterwards. Uh, but for right now, just, just sit back, relax, and, and enjoy. And another thing I like about this is, is the first, I don't know, 20 minutes or so is kind of a setup on uh, the philosophical background. If you've listened to this show before, you know how big into philosophy I am and, and how that just plays a huge role in life and how most people hold views that they don't even really realize where they, those views came from. So it's really interesting to me to have him sort of dissect some of these uh, philosophical underpinnings of uh, parenting. So enough of me rattling on. I'm now going to play. Uh, it's a series of two lectures that were, were held over two days. So you will hear one lecture and then I'll immediately follow it up with the second lecture. All right. Enjoy. And we'll see you after the lectures. Thanks. What happened 40 years ago is that as we were shifting from being a culture rooted in tradition to a culture that allowed the media to tell us how to live our lives, a media-oriented culture. The media uplifted a group of people and said to the American public, if you want the real skinny on how to raise children, you'd better listen to these people. They really know what they're talking about. Look, they have capital letters after their names. And of course, the media was referring and giving a platform to people like me, people in the mental health profession, psychologists, clinical social workers, family therapists, family counselors, and so on. And with the able assistance of the media, we mental health professionals, we were able to convince the American public, you, of something completely and utterly absurd, and that is that, and I'll just use a hypothetical case in both, both instances, that a person, say, 35 years old with a PhD in psychology, and this person's been married for five years and has one child age three, knows more about children and how to raise them properly than does a 78-year-old woman with a fifth-grade education who's raised 10, all of whom are fine, upstanding members of the community. An entirely absurd proposition. And yet, with the assistance of the media, we were able to convince you of this. And so, you, and I'm referring to American parents, began listening to us when it came to the rearing of children. And when we realized that we had your ear, we went about demonizing traditional parenting. We went about demonizing the traditional family, the traditional marriage. We did this, I believe in order to differentiate ourselves, number one, but also in order to addict you in a somewhat literal but primarily figurative sense of the term to the advice that we were dispensing. We created a demonic myth that caused an entire generation of American parents who bought into this myth to resolve that if there was one thing they were not going to do as adults... It was they weren't going to raise their children the way they themselves were raised. 
The demonic myth goes something like this. All of us baby boomers, we were raised in pathologically dysfunctional families by pathologically codependent parents who infected us with their codependence and abused us psychologically, if not physically. If you remember the abuse, you were abused. And if you don't remember the abuse, well, then you were certainly abused. And by the way, while there is, you know, no doubt about it, children in previous generations have been abused, it's interesting to note that since we embraced this experiment, that not only has every indicator of positive mental health in American children been sliding precipitously downhill, but also, by all accounts, the rate of child abuse in America across the demographic spectrum has been climbing. Not simply a reporting artifact, a recent study which controlled for reporting variables still found that the rate of child abuse in America has climbed, which is a good indication, folks, of parental stress in America today. And one of the things that I'm going to be proposing to you is that parenting has become such a tremendously stressful, frustrating enterprise in this country simply because you have been listening to the wrong people for 40 years. You have been listening to people like me, which is ironic. Grandma, and grandma is the term that I use to refer generically to parents of previous generations, uh, the traditional, old-fashioned, pre-modern parent. Grandma is defined as being a parent who, in her parenting, was informed by traditional sources. She was informed by her extended family. She was informed by her community, her church community, her neighborhood. She was informed by elders in those communities. And she was informed by Judeo-Christian scripture, our primary book of tradition in Western civilization. She also is defined by the fact that she finished most of her child rearing before 1960, which does not mean all of her children were out of the house by 1960, but simply that her youngest child was a teenager by 1960. Once you have all of your children into their teenage years, your parenting is over, whether you realize it or not. It's all maintenance and repair from that point on. So grandma, the pre-modern parent, and also by means of clarification, I'm not simply referring to the female parent, but it's just easier to say grandma than it is to constantly say grandma and grandpa. So grandma, in the raising of her children, she was focused on character issues. She was focused on their citizenship, which she knew to be a matter of their character. And she was using what I refer to as the workshop of her family to instruct her children in character virtues, like the three virtues that I define as the three R's of parenting, because to me they seem to have consisted the core of grandma's teachings respect for adults in positions of legitimate authority, a willingness to accept responsibility, both in terms of accountability for one's own behavior and tasks assigned by authority figures, and thirdly, a resourceful, hang in there, tough it out, try and try again attitude brought to the challenges of life. 
respect, responsibility, and resourcefulness. Grandma was not focused on, for example, seeing to it that her children, you know, developed a talent in a musical instrument or got into gifted and talented programs or the other things that parents today seem to be focused on. She was focused on character because she knew that a person of strong character is a person who is outfitted for success in life regardless of whether he plays a musical instrument or not, regardless of what his IQ is, etc., etc. And folks, just on the IQ issue, which I bring to the fore only because I'm speaking to an audience that represents a generation that seems fixated on the idea of getting their children into gifted and talented programs. Let me point out to you, as I point out to most of my audiences, that each and every one of you knows a person with a very high IQ who has made a complete mess of his or her life and a mess of the lives of people around them. And yet, none of you know anyone of good character who has done that. People of good character, they fail at certain things. Make no mistake about it, we all fail at one thing or another in our lives. But people of good character and their failures, they don't mess up their own lives or other people's. They pick themselves up, they dust themselves off, they check out the lessons they have learned through this failure, and they keep on trucking, as we say in the vernacular of today. So I ask you this question. Are we really focused on the right issues in parenting today? And I would suggest we are not, because psychologists and other mental health professionals shifted the attention in parenting away from character issues to the issue of psychological development and skill development. Psychologists and other mental health professionals told us that what we ought to be doing is focusing primarily on the development of something they called self-esteem, which in fact they said was increased vis-a-vis the number of skills the child became proficient at. So these are really one and the same thing. Self-esteem, making children feel wonderful about themselves, feel special. I was in a school in Alabama not long ago, and it was about a year and a half ago, I would imagine, and I walked into the, it was an elementary school, I walked into the boys' restroom before the talk that I was to deliver there, and when I turned to face the mirror, I could not help but notice a large banner splashed above the mirror, which read, and the the printing was in large letters, computer-generated, hand-colored, You are now looking at one of the most special people in the whole wide world. And I thought, how completely disgusting. How absolutely absurd. How ridiculous. And there are some of you out there who are maybe going, John, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the mere fact, the, the basic fundamental truth, which is that no one is special, no one is wonderful. And you see, Grandma understood that. Grandma understood that every child brings into the world with him human nature. And folks, human nature is not a pretty thing. And Grandma understood this. She understood, I put it this way, that every child comes into the world with his very own Pandora's box. 
a box filled with a tremendous capacity for narcissistically driven antisocial behavior. Behind every antisocial act is the narcissistic impulse. The narcissistic impulse can be summarized in this fashion. It resides within a person and causes that person to believe that what he wants, he deserves, and the ends justify the means. Narcissists are antisocial people. Narcissists believe that they are special and wonderful. Grandma, she thought her children were special. She did not want them thinking they were special. But we have been wanting children to think that they are special for the last 40 years. I thought to myself as I was looking at that banner how absolutely ridiculous. But this is emblematic of the absurd nature of parenting in America today and the absurd nature of it for the last 40 years. You know, let me ask you this question. In scripture it says you raise up a child in the way that he will go. Now, folks, that's for better or worse. You raise up a child in the way that he will go, for better or worse. Do we want adults thinking that they are special and wonderful? Would any of you be inclined to want to be friends with someone who, five minutes after meeting them, it became completely obvious to you, believed he was one of the most special people in the whole wide world? No, folks. A person who is an adult who believes that way about himself or herself is socially repulsive. (laughs) They're obnoxious. Nobody wants to be friends with them. Now, why would we want children to believe something about themselves that is socially repulsive and obnoxious in an adult? By the way, when I said before, that uh, narcissistic people are antisocial and narcissistic people have high self-esteem. A recent study was done, and uh, I'm referring to it in my next book, which is called Raising a Nonviolent Child. It'll be out in September for those of you who are interested. There was a study done in 1996 by a group of people from Case Western Reserve University, a group of psychologists who reviewed all of the literature and self-esteem one of the things that they did was to administer self-esteem reports or surveys to various populations of people, various groups of people around the country in occupational groups and demographic groups, etc., etc. The people who scored the highest on these surveys of self-esteem were people incarcerated in maximum security prisons. These people have high self-esteem, folks. They think the rules don't apply to them. They're a cut above the rules. That's why they're in prison. They believe what they want, they deserve. That's why they're in prison. They believe the ends justify the means. That's why they're in prison. They are dangerous people. And folks, let me just uh, take a little, little tangent here. As we have been telling children they are special and wonderful the American child has become increasingly dangerous to himself and to other people. Grandma understood this child comes into the world carrying his very own Pandora's box. Her job is to keep a firm hand on the lid of the box until the child is old enough to keep the lid of the box closed himself. And today, folks, we don't believe 
in human nature anymore. We don't believe that every child comes into the world carrying this thing called human nature and that it is not a pretty thing. We believe, courtesy of the psychobabble of the last 40 years, in a new age vision of the child. We believe, in effect, that every child is an incarnate being of holy light sent down from heaven to grace us with his or her immaculate presence. Folks, today we have an idealized, romanticized, sentimentalized vision of children. And it's blinding us to the realities of who they really are. And if we are blind to the, to the realities of who they really are, then we are also encumbered in carrying out our responsibilities to them and to our fellow human beings. Human nature is not a pretty thing. And Grandma understood this because, in part because, she was attuned, if not explicitly, then certainly implicitly, to the messages contained in Western civilization's first parenting story, Genesis chapter 3. It's a parenting story. It's all about a parent and his first two children. 750 words in length, give or take, depending on translation. I would encourage each and every one of you this afternoon when you go home, take out the family Bible, flip it open to Genesis chapter 3, and read it. It is a fascinating story. And here it is. It's a snapshot of human nature. It's a snapshot of what every parent will forever have to deal with with his or her children. The story goes like this in sum. The only perfect parent there is or ever will be creates two children who disobey his first instruction. They do, as soon as his back is turned, the most outrageous thing they could possibly have done in his house. Right off the bat. And Grandma read this and she understood, you see, as a consequence of this... There was no parenting effort that she, a mere mortal, could make that would guarantee that her children would always be well-behaved and would never do anything outrageous. No parenting effort could guarantee that. She could minimize the likelihood of outrageous behavior through her parenting, but she could never guarantee a child who was always well-behaved. Her parenting was not in the final analysis, as powerful as it might have been, more powerful than human nature. Human nature is a powerful thing. As somebody said to me recently, after hearing this talk, they said, John, basically what you meant is, you don't have to teach a child to behave, you have to teach him to stop misbehaving. And isn't that true? Isn't it true? Grandma also understood that for the first two years of her child's life, she had to do something that would, by the time this child was two years old, produce a raging narcissist. She had to. She had no choice. What she had to do was she had to orbit around her child in a ministry of constant service. Orbiting, doing things for this child all the while giving him the impression that as his parents and primarily his mother is doing, because it's a one-person job, really, two people are just going to get in each other's way. It's a one-person job. 
And 99.9% .9 of the time, women are on the front lines of this, giving their infant and young toddler children the impression that as they are doing, so the world revolves around them. And also giving these children the impression that they run the show. You see, you have to understand that an infant and a toddler has no sense of history. He has no sense that anything existed before the moment that he opened his eyes and from his point of view created the universe. He has no appreciation for the bigger picture. He does not know that he is helpless. He does not know that he is completely dependent on somebody else for his very survival on a day-to-day -day basis. Why, from his point of view, he is pulling the strings. He makes a loud noise and someone appears and says, basically, how may I serve you, my lord? What may I do for you? And we figure out what this child wants and we do it. And every single time we reinforce this child's growing perception of himself as the most omnipotent power in the known universe. The rules don't apply to him because obviously he's making the rules. What he wants he deserves because that's his daily fare. And Grandma knew that by age two, she had on her hands a thoroughly raging narcissist. A little criminal. Yeah, they're little criminals, aren't they? <clears throat> what would you think of an adult who, every time he was frustrated, threw himself on the floor and began screaming and yelling and hitting people who came close and every time you told him to do something said, no, I don't have to, you can't make me. Bit you at times and bit other people and snatched things out of people's hands and folks, let's face it, these little people at age two, they are little criminals. Oh, they're cute little criminals. They've got pudgy little cheeks. And they have a cute little smile, but they're little criminals. They lie, they steal, they snatch things out of people's hands, they hit, they bite, they defy authority. We'd put an adult like this in jail. Now Grandma knew it was time for her child's rehabilitation. She had to begin bringing the curtain down on this first phase of child rearing, beginning around the 24 month of her child's life. And she wasn't in any terribly big hurry. She knew that she had about a year to bring the curtain completely down. And so around age two, she began bringing the curtain down. She shifted out of her the role that she had been in for the first two years, servant. And over a year's time, she altered her child's perception of her completely. And folks, it is still the child's perception of his mother that is at issue here. Up until age two, this child has a completely dysfunctional, erroneous, counterproductive, and downright dangerous view of who his mother is. She is his servant.
he thinks, for life. One of the first things that grandma did to revise her child's perception of her, she toilet trained her child on time. It is emblematic of the fact that we no longer give women permission in our culture today to extract themselves from servanthood to their children. That we are actually telling women it is all right to let an intelligent human being soil and wet himself until he is three, four, or even five years old. You see, folks, the issue is not simply that the child is still wearing diapers. The issue is that as long as the child is wearing diapers, the mother in the child's eyes is his servant. Because you cannot be perceived as other than a servant if you are bent over your child six or seven times a day, changing him, powdering him, wiping him, making him dry. And Grandma knew, you see, this, and, and she didn't know this explicitly. She didn't think like this. Her parenting was pretty much intuitive. It was commonsensical. What I have to do today in front of the audiences to whom I speak is I have to analyze grandma because we don't any longer as a culture really understand what she did and why she did it. She knew that for the first two years of her child's life, she was bent over her child doing things for him. And that to alter her child's perception of herself, she had to stand upright. She had to throw her arms, shoulders back, She had to straighten out her spine, and she had to begin to look like an authority figure. And folks, this is what she did, beginning around age two. She began to straighten up, move out of service to her child. And by the time he was three years old, he looked at her with a completely new set of eyes. By the time he was three, this was a woman who looked like this. She was a formidable authority figure in his life. Folks, we no longer give women permission in our culture to do this. We tell women that the best mother is the mother who serves in perpetuity. And the consequences of this are dire Ladies and gentlemen, they are dire. What we have on our hands in this generation of children are children who are not only more ill-behaved than any other group of children in the, Amer- in the planet, but any other group of children in American culture ever. People who come to this country from other lands to whom I speak tell me consistently that children in their countries do not behave the way American children behave. I was speaking recently to a couple from India who told me, they had moved here very recently, who told me that they were actually concerned about letting their children play with American children because... They feared the influence of American children on their own children's behavior. Let me ask you guys a question. How many of you can honestly say that uh, 
your children are as well-behaved, meaning as respectful, as willing to accept responsibility when assigned by an adult. How many of you can honestly say, yeah, John, my children are every bit as well-behaved as I was as a child. I have any takers on that? This isn't unusual, folks. It is not unusual at all. I spoke in Traverse City, Michigan, just to let you know that Indianapolis is not the only place this is happening. Back in the fall, to 750 people asked that question, not one hand went up. Daphne, Alabama, a year and a half ago, 500 people in a Catholic church, not one hand went up. And let me tell you who you are. You do not represent a cross-section of parents in Indianapolis. You represent the cream of the crop. The most concerned, the most conscientious, the most responsible, the most effort-oriented group of parents in this city. There is only one type of parent who will give up a Sunday afternoon to come hear stuff like this. And that is a parent who wants to do what is best for their children. And I ask, as I have in many audiences around the country, are there any, is there anyone here who can say with absolute confidence, my children are as well behaved as I was as a child and not one of you raises a hand. Not one of you. And this is consistent, folks, with what I hear not only from people in other countries, but also from grandma. I talk to men and women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. These people consistently, so consistently that I have to believe that this is the way it was, consistently tell me that 50 years ago in America, the typical child had stopped throwing tantrums and had stopped openly defying parental authority by his or her third birthday. Now, can you imagine? This sounds like some sort of parenting nirvana to the contemporary ear. Stop throwing tantrums by age three? Yeah. I asked my mother recently, I said, Mom, how old do you think I was when I stopped, when I threw my last tantrum? She went to the family photograph albums, which are all sort of chronological, and she went to the first one and She started leafing through the pictures of me as a youngster. And she came to this one picture and she said, Oh, I think you are about that old. She took the picture out and the date on the back indicated that I was between two and a half and three years of age. And my mother is reporting that I had thrown my last tantrum by this point in time. Not that I, you know, wasn't upset from that point on at certain decisions that she made. And not that she couldn't tell that I was upset. But folks, the stomping of the feet, the screaming, the falling on the floor, the flailing of the arms, the wailing had stopped in my life by the time I was two years, nine, ten months of age. And I was not, according to the reports of these old-fashioned people all around the country, an unusual child in this respect. And also... In the typical American child, this had stopped by age three. No, I won't. You can't make me. That's toddler stuff, folks. Historically, I want you to understand that tantrums and open defiance of parental authority is toddler behavior. Now, you know, children may have stopped this stuff by age three, but they were still mischievous. Let me assure you, 
they still, when their parents' backs were turned, were inclined to do exactly what their parents had told them not to do. I call that the Adam and Eve syndrome, and that's children for time immemorial. But throwing their shoulders back and openly defying parental authority had stopped by age three. And folks, I talked again to people in other cultures who tell me that today in India and Pakistan and Japan and so on and so forth, that this still stops by age three. Italy, France, it still stops by age three. The danger in America, folks, is that we are beginning to think that this sort of behavior in a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old is normal. I call it the frog in hot water phenomenon. You know, it is said, and I don't know if this is true, but the analogy works anyway. If you take a frog and you drop him in very hot water, he will leap right out. But if you put the frog in just lukewarm water, very comfortable water, and then you put this container on the stove and you turn the heat on, that the frog will not jump out of the water. The frog will allow himself to be cooked in this water. Because the heat is coming up so very slowly and gradually that he doesn't notice it for all intents and purposes. And I suggest that this is what's happened in America with the behavior of American children. That the behavior of American children has worsened so gradually but so slowly and inexorably over the last 40 years that we're like frogs in, hot, in, in water that's getting increasingly hot, folks. We don't notice it. We're habituated to it. And it's just getting worse and worse. I talk to teachers all across America as well. I do about 50 presentations a year exclusively to audiences of teachers, and it is not unusual for teachers to come up to me and say, John, it's not just in the last 40 years, it's in the last five years. The behavior of children in the classroom has worsened considerably since 1995. And where does this end, folks? Where does it end? Well, I suggest it isn't going to end, that we're headed down the slippery slope to child-rearing anarchy in America, child anarchy in America, and that what we need to do as a culture is to get a grip on this and we're going to get a grip on it, I suggest, by re-embracing the principles and precepts that guided grandma's parenting. It wasn't perfect. There are people who say, I idealize grandma. No, I don't. I fully recognize that she was human and therefore sinful and imperfect and that everything she did, including her childbearing, was imperfect. What I'm suggesting is we have no alternative. This experiment that we've embraced for the last 40 years has failed miserably. And we are not going to be able to make little minor adjustments to it and get it to work. Our only option, I suggest at this point, is to abandon this ridiculous experiment in making children feel wonderful about themselves and re-embrace the ideas that guided grandma's child rearing. Grandma was focused on her child's behavior. <coughs> when her child, <clears throat> she was focused on his behavior. When he misbehaved, she punished him. All she was doing, folks, was she was acting as the thresher of her child's behavior. The thresher, 
She was moving through her child's life, threshing his behavior, separating the behavioral wheat from the behavioral chaff, just saying to herself, well, I'll keep this, but no, this is going to go, and this is going to stay, and this is going to go. And there was no area of gray between grandma's, what grandma would let remain and what grandma was going to get rid of. There was no big area of gray, if any area of gray at all. Because grandma knew that if there was an area of gray in her own mind, that an area of gray in terms of his own morality and ethics would develop in her child's mind. And so it was just black and white. It was right and wrong. There were no excuses. There were none. Do you remember your parents saying that to you? With their, always with a finger in the air, wagging it at you. There are no excuses. There'll be no ifs, ands, or buts. Why were there no excuses? Genesis chapter 3, folks, read it. It's right there. That's why there should be no excuses. Because if you give them the opportunity to explain themselves, they lie. God comes to Adam. Explain yourself. Does he tell the truth? Does he say, Father, forgive me, I got carried away. Listen, I accept full responsibility for the choice I made. No. No, he does what human nature inclines us to do. And that is, he passes the buck. He says, it wasn't me, man. It was that woman. You gave her to me. That's what it says. You gave her to me. Like in part, it was God's fault. And haven't you heard your children say that? Haven't you? Well, if you wouldn't have let me do it... I wouldn't have misbehaved. This is children, folks. It's human nature. And God goes to the woman and says, all right, I'm going to give you a shot at this. And she does the same thing. She doesn't accept responsibility for the choice that she made. She wants to pass it off on peer pressure. It was the serpent, not me. Folks, this is a story of peer pressure, or at least using peer pressure as an excuse. This is a story of the first two human beings who decided to use drugs. This is a story of human nature and how we are inclined toward pleasure and hedonistic instant gratification. This is human nature. This is the child. This is what we are dealing with. Not an incarnate being of holy light sent down from heaven to grace us with his presence. A person who has to be taught not to misbehave before we can teach him how to properly behave. Before we can teach him to properly behave, we have to stop the misbehavior that he is inclined to generate by virtue of his or her nature, what he brought into the world with him, which is savagery and little criminality. And Grandma stopped it by age three with a combination of powerful discipline and powerful love. Powerful in both respects. And folks, what we have done is we have been allowed, we have allowed ourselves 
to shift the emphasis away from the child's behavior, specifically when he misbehaves, to trying to understand his feelings. You know, in 1955, just to give you a contrast here, in 1955, when I was in the third grade, if I misbehaved in Mrs. Hoy's class, it is conceivable that I would have been punished by four separate people that day. Mrs. Hoy, my principal, Mr. Crone, my mother when I got home, my stepfather when he got home. And not one of these people would have sat me down and said words to this effect. Now, John, we'd really like to help you understand what this was all about. And to do so, we need for you to get back in touch with the feelings that you were having just before this incident occurred. (laughs) No, folks, nobody wanted to know how I felt before I had done what I did. And I'd come home and my mother, my mother would be, she'd have already heard about it, of course, because there was almost instant communication between teacher and parent in those days. And I'd come through the back door and my mother would be standing there, her hands on her hips, looking at me. And I'd say, Mom, Mom, I know you've heard and I can understand, I can can explain. And she'd say, there will be no ifs, ands, or buts about this because my mother knew if you give a child the opportunity to explain, he is not going to tell the truth. He is going to pass the buck. He is going to come up with his own version of it was the woman, it was the serpent. Do you know, and this is something that teachers inform me of all across America, do you know that today... There are actually parents in America, there may be some in this audience, and if there are, just if I'm not stepping on your foot hard enough, you need to reach over and stomp on your own foot, who have actually said, my child has never lied to me? Are any of you out there? I say to parents who believe that, come on, take the wool off your eyes, open your eyes, and begin to see your children for who they are. You're believing in something about your children that is counterproductive to them and counterproductive to you and counterproductive to me as well. Another person heard me speak in uh, Ohio recently. And... uh, got up in front of the second audience of the afternoon to introduce me and she said in the course of the comments about the first talk she said something very much along the lines of something I've already shared with you that came from another person she said and I remembered back during John's talk to my childhood and I realized that it was true as a child I had to be taught not how to tell the truth I had to be taught to stop lying. And folks, this is what it's all about. It's realizing that the first thing we have to do is we have to correct to the greatest degree possible this human nature that this child has brought into the world with him. Grandma understood. But now we want to appreciate the child's feelings, understand why he did it. And folks... I hope you understand that the moment you try to explain this child's behavior in your own mind or understand it, that what you are doing is constructing an excuse. 
that this is totally antithetical to grandma's idea that there will be no excuses. There are no excuses. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. And what happened, by the way, when it became all about the child's feelings and appreciating and understanding them is that a great gulf widened between the male and the female parent. Grandma and grandpa, their points of view on their children were very similar. But typically in America, not always, there are exceptions to everything that I talk about from up here, and I hope you guys appreciate that. (coughs) But typically in America... There's a great gulf between the male and the female point of view concerning children and child-rearing that never existed before, never did. You see, when it became all about feelings, I'm convinced, and I see evidence of this everywhere in America, testimony to its effect and existence, by the way, from women, that women began to think that there was only one gender qualified to carry out the new psychological feeling-oriented job of raising children, and that was women. Why? Well, because women are more sensitive to other people's emotions than are men. It's true what they say about us. We're not in touch with other people's feelings. We're not in touch with our own. We have a feeling, and we get over it. And a woman has a feeling, and she gets down into it. And this is not a value judgment, folks. I, I, I think the world would be a boring, to say the least, place if everybody was one way or everybody was the other way. To translate from the French, long live the differences. The grandma knew that grandpa was insensitive. He was an emotional Neanderthal. She knew this. See... Folks, it's like this. All of us, male and female, we come into the world with eight crayons in our emotional crayon boxes. Yeah, we come into the world with red, yellow, blue, green, orange, purple, black, and white. Eight crayons in our emotional crayon boxes. But by the time a woman is 30 years old, she's got 64 crayons in her emotional crayon box. She's got aubergine and magenta and taupe and eight shades of yellow and the 30-year-old man's still functioning with the original eight. Yeah, and several of the points have never been worn. Grandma knew this. It didn't enter into her thinking about her husband's participation in child-rearing. Let me be very specific. She had no problem whatsoever with his discipline of their children. His discipline of their children. And most of us heard it from a woman who, generally speaking, was very calm, not on the edge of hysteria, a woman who could have handled the situation herself quite easily and quite effectively, mind you, a woman who simply decided for whatever reasons that day she was going to bring in the big guns. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're just going to wait until your father gets home. And the emotional Neanderthal would come lumbering in at 6, 6.30. And she'd say, sick him, Bruno. 
knowing that he was going to go in there and he was going in his discipline to make the children feel bad. (laughs) Feel bad. Because when a child misbehaves, that's the only way you can stop the misbehavior. In fact, you can't stop the misbehavior. The child has to stop the misbehavior. And the child is not going to stop the misbehavior unless the misbehavior has emotional consequences which he doesn't want to experience again, period. Emotional consequences. He's not going to stop that misbehavior. The only person who can stop it, him. He is not going to stop it unless you make him feel bad about it. Grandma knew this. When she disciplined the children, she set out to make them feel bad. Let me tell you about today's woman. All too often, number one, she is trying to discipline her children without ever making them feel bad. Because we have assigned to today's woman the job of psychological protectress for life. She is trying to discipline her children without ever making them feel bad. And when she does slip and she makes them feel bad, then she feels bad. Now, isn't that absurd? The child misbehaves. The mother ends up feeling bad. Folks, parenting in America is upside down, inside out, and backwards. It's crazy. This is insane. Absolutely insane. There's no other way to put it. And today's woman, unlike grandma, this number two, she is often found running disciplinary interference between her children and her husband. Basically doing this. No, no, no. I'll handle this. You didn't read the book. And he didn't, because the book is all about the child's feelings and how you have to appreciate them and understand them and cater to them and make excuses. And the guy is looking at this going, this is rubbish. Because, see, the the male mentality toward parenting is still, generally speaking, with exceptions, you know, stuck back there in the 1950s. It's stuck back there. We just don't get all this modern, feeling-oriented stuff. And women know this. And it scares them. And so, many women refuse to allow their husbands to discipline their, in the singular sense, children. Today's women believe the childering project rests almost completely on their shoulders. On their shoulders. They're the only gender qualified to carry it out, carry it out properly. Their husbands just don't get it and never will. They've tried to get them to read the books and they won't. Or if they do, they go, honey, this is trash, okay? Unmitigated trash. Why do you read this stuff? And then why do you complain to me because the children's behavior is so bad? And then why do you not let me discipline the kids? But you want me to read these books. The same books that are causing you to have the problems that you keep complaining about to me concerning the children. 
Do you know, folks, let's, let's roll time backwards. Do you know, well, let me, I'll just do it. Grandma was pretty relaxed in her parenting, and she was dealing with the same human nature that today we're dealing with, but she had a realistic vision concerning this human nature. Now, let me show you how relaxed Grandma was because she understood the realities of her child and understood, therefore, the realities of her responsibilities. She was not deluded by psychobabble one bit, hampered and encumbered by it. How many of you were raised by women you obeyed? In other words, your mothers. Women you obeyed who never yelled, raise your, raise your hands. Now, by that I mean, you know, your mothers may have raised their voices to emphasize a point, but never did their voices go shrieking through the sound barrier, you know? How many of you? You obeyed your mothers, they never yelled. Let's see those hands up. And I want you to keep them up because I want people in the front to turn around and look at how many hands are up, okay? Now, folks, we're, we're talking about a group of people here who represent the way children were raised in America 40 years ago. And look how many of you can say, yeah, my mother, she might have raised her voice, but she never shrieked and yelled. She never lost it. <clears throat> Is there a woman in this audience today with children living with her in the home who can say her children obey her as well as she did her mother and she has never yelled? I've got one, two. I've got three. Well, sometimes I get none. I got a woman in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, after, uh, after three weeks of getting no hands up to this at all, see, a woman in Hartford, Connecticut, sitting right where these young ladies are right here, Raised her hand, looking very, you know, excited. And I looked at her, because I hadn't gotten a hand up in three weeks, and she said, well, he's only five months old. <laughs> now, folks, I would, I would venture to guess that 50% uh, of you raised your hand to the first question, and three of you raised your hand to the second. Now, what does this tell you? It tells you that parenting has become extremely stressful for the American female. Extremely stressful for the American female. And let me tell you what is stressful for the American male. It is stressful to stand and have to watch this stuff and being held at arm's length and being told, no, 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 I'll handle it. Aren't any women clapping, are there? <laughs> Some of you women are out there going, I wish I hadn't brought my husband today. Some of you guys are out there going, I didn't want to come, but I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> and folks, I want you to understand, I mean, there are actually people who listen to this talk and ha have accused me of sexism. Excuse me? No, no, no. If you're doing that, then you're just, you don't want to accept the message. This isn't about women. This is about what's happened to women. This is the most paradoxical generation of women to ever inhabit our culture. This is a generation of women who've taken admirable, huge strides forward professionally, politically, economically, educationally, and have indentured themselves to their children in perpetuity. And folks, this is a major problem in the American family. In the American family, this gulf between the male and the female has resulted in or been caused by the fact, however you look at it,
in the American mother viewing herself, regardless of whether she's married or not, as a single parent. In her own mind, she sees herself as a single parent. She is singularly responsible for the outcome of this project, singularly responsible for the success of her children in life, singularly responsible for their behavior, singularly responsible for their grades in school, singularly responsible for what college they get into, etc., etc., etc. Today's mother thinks, to put it in the vernacular, it's all about her. And this is the straitjacket we have fashioned for this generation of American women. And they have just slipped right into it and allowed themselves to be tied up in it. And it's tearing women apart, as indicated by the fact that hardly any of you can say, your children obey you as well as you obeyed your mother and you've never yelled. It's tearing our culture apart, as evidenced by the fact that none of you can say that your children are as well behaved as you were when you were children. It's tearing us apart at the seams. That we no longer give American women permission to straighten up where their children are concerned and put their hands on their hips and look at their children and say things like this, you see, because this is what this woman said. And this is what today's women don't feel they have permission to say. Things like this. <clears throat> I don't have time for you right now. Now, I want you to go away and leave me alone. <laughs> Folks, this is how, by the way, you women, I'm speaking directly to you, this is how you stop yelling. This is how you stop yelling. You give yourself complete permission to say these things right up front. You had better leave me alone or you will be sorry that you didn't. Because if you can't find something to do right now, I am going to find something for you to do. What is it going to be? This is how you stop yelling. You stop yelling by understanding what grandma meant by you're going to fight your own battles, paddle your own canoe. You're going to lie in the beds you make. This is how you stop yelling. But today's woman, you see, she is fettered by the messages that are written on what I call the mother bar. The mother bar. The mother bar is the bar that today's mothers think they have to clear on a daily basis. And these messages read, and these messages were not imposed on women of previous generations. These messages read, the best mother is the busiest mother, the mother who spends the most quality time with her children, the mother who provides the most in terms of after-school activities, who helps them the best with their homework, who does the most for them, who drives them around all the time, who arranges their social calendar, who fixes it every time they get upset. Let's just talk about the last one. My mother, being a representative mother of the grandma, last grandma generation, she didn't think she had to fix it when I got upset. She, think I, she thought I had to fix it. If a teacher upset me, listen folks, if a teacher upset me, I didn't even tell my mother. And I hoped the teacher wouldn't tell my mother. Because the only reason in my mother's mind that a teacher would have upset me is because I was doing something meriting being upset. 
And I knew that if my mother found out that the teacher had upset me, my mother would upset me even more. And I didn't come home and go, she doesn't like me. But today's women, it's, it's amazing. Today's women, they hear that the t- from a child, from a, a six, seven, eight-year-old child, whom, says Proverbs 22, 15, maybe in front of you, has foolishness bound in his heart. We take the word of a child as credible. A child comes home and says, my teacher doesn't like me, and the mother rises up indignantly and marches to the school and tries to straighten this out. This is absurd. Today's mother thinks if the playmates upset her child, she's got to get out there and fix it. Listen, if I came home and said, this is just the contrast, if I came home and said, they're not playing fair, my mother would have just simply taken me by the hand and said, then you don't need to be outside for the rest of the day. Come on in here. I've got a lot of things that you can do in here for me, beginning with washing the kitchen floor. Come on, you're going to wash the kitchen floor. And folks, that was the last time I came home and said that kids were not playing fair. And you know something? I'm speaking to you women. You can become this kind of mother any time you want. Any time you want. See, the purpose of me being up here today is to show you exactly what the contrast is. So that you know, from this point on, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can go home today, and I'm speaking to every single one of you women. You can go home today, and you can walk in the door of your house, and it'll be like you molted that other mother. Okay? Just like that. Okay? Today's mother feels when she upsets her child, she's got to fix it. My mother never thought when she upset me that she had to fix it. When she upset me with a decision that she made, her term was, I'm just going to let you, what? Exactly, stew in your own juices. I'm just going to let you stew in your own juices about this. My mother thought if she made a decision that upset me, my distress was indication she had made the right decision. Today's mother thinks if she makes a decision that makes the child feel bad, the child's distress is indication she's made a bad decision. What? Excuse me? Again, thinking children know what's best for themselves? But see, it's all now. It's in terms of psychic pain. We mustn't cause any psychic pain on our children. And because today's mother is this flurry of doing things for her children, because whereas grandma, see, as time went on from age two on, She tried to do less and less for her children. In fact, and this may sound incredibly cold and callous to the modern ear, but Grandma, by the time her child was three and a half or four, her goal on a daily basis was to do as little for and have as little to do with her children as possible. Now, doesn't that sound cold and callous to the modern ear? But that was it. It was all in the service of helping them stand on their own two feet. It was all in the service of getting them to accept responsibility for their own behavior. And most of you were raised, ladies and gentlemen, because those of you who were raised by women you obeyed who never yelled, I guarantee you, the same people who raised their hands to that question were raised by a woman who, by the time you were four years old, was trying to have as little to do with you as she possibly could on a daily basis. And today's mother as time goes on, is trying to find more and more for herself to do. 
grandma's effort curve went like this. And today's mother's effort curve is going like this. She's a flurry of activity, doing things for her children constantly. Their homework and checking this and checking that and arranging their social calendar, driving them to one activity after another to strengthen the various brain modules she read about in Newsweek magazine. And, oh, she's got to get them into Suzuki violin by age four and all these things before, you know, the music module shuts down and so on and so on and so forth. And it's all up to her. And the modern American dad, <clears throat> he's what I call the parenting aide. The parenting aide. He stands off to the side if he's interested, and every man here today is interested. He stands off to the side watching this flurry of activity. He's there like a teacher's aide. He's there to take instruction from the real parent, <laughs> which he is not. And he's there to fill in for the real parent when the real parent needs a break. And he's standing there watching, you know, his... This, this woman do this and this and this. and Every once in a while she turns and goes, are you just going to stand there? <laughs> well, folks, he's learned that if he does something, his wife's going to tell him he did it. Exactly. So he takes the safe avenue and simply waits for instruction, okay? He's not, he's not going to take any initiative. Every time he does, he gets his hand slapped, you know? Oh, and this runs deep. I was at, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's comedy. If you, if you look at parents through, through the eyes that I've developed over the last 22 years of writing my newspaper column, it's comedy, you know. And you, you guys can develop these eyes very quickly. I'm at uh, <clears throat> Charlotte Douglas Airport about a year or so ago. I've just, uh, I'm checking in curbside, and I know all the curbside guys by name, and, and so I just walk up, and, hey, man, and put my bags down and put my ticket on top of my bags, and they take it from there, you know. And, uh, uh, and I stand back usually, and I just engage in my favorite sport, which is watching people. And not because I'm a psychologist, because I'm nosy and a voyeur. And uh, <laughs> a hotel van pulls up, and outstep a mother, a father, and a little four-year-old boy, and the mother says to the father, I'll check us in. You help him on with his book bag. Simple enough assignment. <laughs> she walks over to the counter, and she begins talking to the baggage agent, and I notice that as she's talking to the ba baggage agent, she keeps looking back. She's probably telling the baggage agent how many bags they have and where they're going, and et cetera. It's... Excuse me, just a moment. She walks back over to where her husband is with her child, and she says, No, 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 that's not how you pack the book bag. You put soft, you're putting hard things in the front. If you put hard things up against his back, it'll chafe his little shoulder blades as he walks along. You have to put soft things in the front, and the harder things... I'll do it. And she begins rearranging all the things in the backpack, you know? And I, the husband just kind of, he steps up and... Moves over to the side like this, and now he's standing right next to me, okay? And, you know, he's gotten up very close, and he looks at me, and he doesn't know me from Adam, I'm sure, but he looks at me, and I'm just kind of standing there looking at him. <laughs> smiling, because I've seen this whole thing, you know, I've seen every mother, you know. She can't even let him pack the book bag. 
He does it wrong. He'll chafe his little shoulder blades. He might have to go into therapy when he's 25 years old and recover the memory of walking through Charlotte Douglas Airport in 1998 feeling this terrible pain in his shoulder blades. And why would my mother have allowed my father to do this, doctor? And I'm just standing there smiling, and he knows I've seen the whole thing. And he looks at me and he goes, as if, what can I do, you know? I, I'm totally incompetent and I ought to accept it. And every once in a while, the mother, you know, she's doing, doing, and fixing, and doing, and driving, and providing, and anticipating, and doing, and fixing, and every once in a while, she'll get really tired. Oh, I can't keep this up. I just can't keep this up. You'll, you'll have to step in for me for a while. Come on. But I'll be watching you. Because, and you women know this, he needs supervision, doesn't he? You just can't let him do it on his own. He might blow the whole thing. It'd be awful, terrible. You'd come back after two hours and the psychological apple cart is spilled over and all the apples you've been carefully arranging for the last few years are spread all over the floor and you go, what's been going on here? And he goes, we've been having fun, you know? Oh, mercy. Okay, it's an absurd image, you know, but here's the fact of the matter is that because American women have accepted all of these messages written on the mother bar, you know something? The typical American woman is not married to her husband, she's married to her kids. Now that's an uncomfortable thought, and I hate to throw it out there, but you know, if you guys are gonna go home and change all this, I've gotta make you somewhat uncomfortable about what's going on in your family today. There's just no doubt about it. In the overwhelming majority of American households, the woman is the mother is married to her children. Most of you grew up in households where the relationship that occupied center stage, and it was not a perfect relationship in any household. Because, you know, a little tangent here, human beings are imperfect. Everything we do is imperfect. Our marriages are imperfect, our families, our child rearing, everything. But for all of its imperfections, the relationship between your mother and father stood center stage. I'm describing the household most of you grew up in. And the household that most children in America today are growing up in is a household in which the relationship that stands center stage is the mother-child relationship. And folks, the mother within this relationship is a perpetual servant. And let me just put it very, very bluntly. You do not respect the servants. And you women, you women, your children are talking to you in ways that grandma would have found, first of all, intolerable. The first time one of her children talked to her the way your children, some of you, talk to you on a daily basis, grandma would have nipped it right in the bud. It wouldn't have happened a second day. All across America, because you don't respect the servants, there is an epidemic of children hitting their mothers in America. I'm not talking about toddlers. You see, this stuff historically is toddler behavior. Toddlers hit. Grandma cured toddlerhood, folks. She cured it. By the time her child was three, he wasn't a toddler any longer. There's an epidemic of children in America, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
who when their mothers do not perform to their satisfaction, they haul off and they hit their mothers or kick them or spit on them, all the while talking to them like they're dirt. You don't respect the servants. And it cannot be said that under these circumstances, children are learning respect for women. It can't be said. And this is dangerous, folks. It's dangerous. Today's women have not taken strides forward. They've taken strides back. I grew up with respect for women. By the time I came to school, I knew when a woman said, do it, you did it. And today's children, when do they learn this? When do they learn that women mean business? When do they learn that women are the embodiment of parent power? When do they learn this? Fifty years ago, by the time I was three, I was afraid of my mother. She'd never yelled, never spanked. She never did. I was afraid of her. Because in a child's mind, this formidable authority figure who's standing and looking at you like this every once in a while, immovable, is an intimidating figure. And to a child, intimidation is translated right into fear. I had no reason to fear my mother, but I did because she presented herself to me as this formidable, indomitable human being who meant exactly what she said. And any one of you women can go home and be that woman today. It's a choice. Today's mother is afraid of her child in perpetuity. By the time I was four, I was working for my mother. Today's mother works for her child in perpetuity. She never stops being a servant. Never does. Okay, that's the first half of a two-part presentation. I hope that most of you are coming back for the second half because in the second half, I'm going to get very, very specific about exactly how to correct this problem that we have created for ourselves by listening to the wrong people, people like me. But come on back and hear some more from people like me. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Grandma understood every child was strong-willed. And she reflected that belief in one of her aphorisms, her ten words or less aphorisms. She said, every child has a mind of his own, which effectively meant, and this is something very important for today's parents to understand, that you cannot control your child. You can only control the relationship that you have with your child. There are lots of parents in America today, by the way, who think they can control their children. And the minute you set out with that goal in mind, believe me, you are beginning to walk a road that is going to create tremendous frustration, tremendous resentment, tremendous anger, tremendous stress. You cannot control your child. God has never been able to control us and make us obedient. So, mere mortal parent, let me assure you, you are not going to be able to accomplish with your children what God has not been, been able to accomplish with us. You can control the relationship with your child, which is what a lot of parents today aren't controlling. 
Most parents today, even unbeknownst to many parents today, are letting their children control the relationship, the parent-child relationship. How do you control your relationship with your child? You control, and you can't do this for the first two years, and I'll talk about this more in this talk. You control your child's access to you. Beginning around the age of two, you control whether he can have access to you or not at any given point in time during the day. You can control what you will and will not do for this child, what you will and will not provide for him. And you can control to great degree when he is young and to diminishing degree as he gets older the consequences of his behavior which is why it's so important that you control those consequences early on so that he learns his lessons early on and so that you're not saddled with, burdened with, a child who's 8, 9, 10 years old who still hasn't learned his lessons. But <coughs> Grandma knew every child is strong-willed, every single child. What we are doing today when we refer to the strong-willed child, when American parents, those of you out there, and I know that there are many, many of you out there who have said to somebody, my child is a strong-willed child. What, what we're not referring to is the child that grandma was referring to, every child. See, what we're doing is we're referring, whether we realize it or not, to a child who is disobedient, who is disrespectful, who has not learned his lessons. Now, Grandma knew every child was strong-willed, but not every child was disobedient. By age three, Grandma had cured her child's toddlerhood. And what we are doing in America today, folks, or more accurately failing to do, is we are failing to recognize that toddlerhood needs to be cured, and we are failing to cure it. And so, in this talk, I'm going to be talking about how to cure toddlerhood. How do you cure toddlerhood? Well, let me take you through the three stages of parenting very, very quickly. First of all, for the first two years, and I talked about this in the earlier presentation, your job is to serve. This is phase one of parenting. You actually have three different phases that you go through with your children. And in each phase, you have a different job and a different job description. Phase one, birth to age two, approximately. Your job is to serve. You orbit in this ministry of service around your child, doing things for him almost constantly. This child makes a loud noise, you come to his side, and how may I serve you, my lord or my lady? We roll these children through shopping centers and other public places and portable thrones from which they sit back and survey their domains, you know, and total strangers come and kneel before these thrones. And, <clears throat> As I said in the earlier presentation, Grandma understood that the curtain had to come down on phase one and relatively early on. If it didn't come down, she was in danger of raising a thoroughly obnoxious, self-centered narcissist. What Grandma referred to as a spoiled brat. And so, between two and three, she brought the curtain down on this first phase of parenting. She altered her child's perception of herself, and she did this by communicating three understandings to her child. Three understandings. Understanding number one, from parent to child, communicated between the second and third birthday, if you're on schedule, 
child of mine, from this point on in our relationship, you will pay a lot more attention to me than I will ever again, generally speaking, pay to you. I will give you the, the attention that you need, knowing that your need for attention is diminishing with every passing day. But you will give to me all of the attention that I want, regardless of when I want it or why. Now, right there, what I've just said is completely out of keeping with what the American parent, and specifically the American female parent, has heard constitutes good parenting from mental health professionals for the last 30 to 40 years. To wit, a message to women that says, in effect, the more attention you pay to your child, the better a mother you are. And there's no end to this, is there? It doesn't say the more attention you pay for the first two years of life, the better a mother you are, which is probably true. It says the more attention you pay, the better mother you are, giving the impression that this is something that you're supposed to do forever and always. Well, folks, by the time a child is three, three years old, he has reached what I call the age of intent. He is now behaving with purpose and malice aforethought. A lot of his behavior before the third birthday is just, you know, it's knee-jerk stuff. You know, you take something away from a two-year-old, he falls on the floor, he flops down, rolls around screaming and yelling. He's not thinking to himself, well, because she took something away from me, I'm going to fall on the floor and see if she won't give it back. No, that's not what he's thinking. It's knee-jerk. But by the time the child is three, and you begin to see it really at an earlier age, but by three, it's really moving down the track on full speed. This child is thinking about what he's going to do and in order to accomplish certain things. By age three, this child has come to one of two conclusions about you, his parents. Conclusion number one, these people, my parents, are here to be paid attention to by me. That's completely obvious. Now... I want to tell you that I represent the last generation of American children to come to this conclusion. By the time I was three years old, believe me, I understood it was my job to pay attention to my mother, who was, by the way, a single parent for most of the first seven years of my life. Conclusion number two. <clears throat> These people, my parents, are here to pay attention to and do things for me. That is completely obvious. And let me assure you, a child who reaches conclusion number two cannot, period, be successfully disciplined. Because in order to discipline a child, you must have the child's attention. That is a prerequisite. Discipline is the process of turning this little person into a disciple, someone who will follow your lead this child will not follow your lead if you are acting as if the person whose job it is to pay attention in this relationship is you. This child will follow your lead if you begin acting between the second and third birthday like the job of paying attention belongs to him. And how do you get a child to pay attention to you, you command his attention. And I distinguish the word from demand. Parents who find themselves demanding, pounding on the table, yelling, screaming, threatening, in order to get their children to pay attention, those are parents whose behavior 
is indicative of the fact that they have failed to command. Well, John, how do you command? Well, it's very simple. It's not complicated. You see, parenting is not rocket science, folks. If you believe what psychologists and other mental health professionals have been saying for the last 40 years, it's rocket science. It isn't rocket science. How do you command a child's attention? Very simple. You act like you know what you are doing. Folks, to command a child's attention, to be an effective authority figure in a child's life, to be an effective disciplinarian, it's not a matter of mattering, of mastering techniques of discipline. It's not a ma matter of correct selection of consequences when a child misbehaves. That's the misunderstanding that has befallen our generation. The last generation of American children to understand or reach conclusion number one and the first generation of American parents to cause their children to reach conclusion number two. Eh? And what is effective discipline? It's a matter of style, folks. It's a matter of how you communicate in both your verbal language and your body language. It's a matter of whether you are perceived by your child as an upright, formidable, indomitable parent as though you look like this to your child, standing straight up in a position of balance, your spine straight, your shoulders thrown back, or whether you look like this to your child constantly, bent over, pleading, begging, complaining, okay? An authority figure doesn't look like this, and no one can command a child's attention from this position. You command attention from this position. That's the body language part of it, and then there's the... There's the verbal language part of it. You command a child's attention by speaking very straightforwardly. My mother, by the time I was four years old, had taught me to wash floors. My mother, by the time I was five, had taught me to wash my own clothes in her washing machine, which was a galvanized tub that sat on the side porch with hand rollers bolted to it. We didn't even have a washboard at the time. And let me tell you how my mother got me to wash floors. I guarantee you, I don't remember clearly, but I know how my mother spoke when she wanted me to do something. And folks, this is how you command a child's attention and command obedience. You speak properly. My mother, I am sure, on the first day that I ever washed a floor, she probably said something to this effect. The words are not important. Listen to the tone. Listen to it. I've got a lot to do today, and it's just occurred to me that you're old enough to learn how to wash a floor, so I'm going to teach you, and you're going to start helping me with this. Come with me. I'm going to show you. Come on. You hear that? It leaves no room for doubt. No room for doubt. And that's the way parents have to speak to their children, leaving no room for doubt. Grandma called it no uncertain terms. The first day that my mother taught me to wash my own clothes, getting down on my hands and knees in the third world, down by the river fashion, picking up two handfuls of clothing out of the soapy water and rubbing them together, I know that my mother said something along these lines to me. I washed those pants yesterday, and I'm not, I do not intend to wash the same pair of pants every single day in your life. You know something? You're old enough to learn how to wash those yourself. Come with me. I'll teach you how. And folks, if you speak like this to a child, leaving no room for doubt, it's almost, it almost has a hypnotic effect upon the child. 
He hears this and he goes, I will do it. I was with my grandson, Patrick, the other day. He was at our house. You know, he lives two doors down, so they come over uh, uh, very frequently. In fact, they, they really like our house, and they'll come and ring the back doorbell, and there they are, Jack and Patrick. Jack is five, Patrick's two and a half, and Jack had left, leaving Patrick there, and Patrick went into the bedroom upstairs that we have reserved for the grandchildren. It's got bunk beds in it. It's got a few toys, a few, just a few. Do you know why it only has a few? There's a practical reason. First of all, and that is children aren't inclined to pick up more than a few toys. And it's amazing to me, and I'm just going to take a little tangent, how parents think that a two-year-old who's got a hundred toys can be expected to pick them up. I mean, you know, what do you, you say to this two-year-old, pick up your toys, and he's looking at, like, you know, the mess of the century, you know. And then there's a philosophical issue. I don't want to turn my grandchildren into materialists who, who view grandma and grandpa as people who give them things, you know. So we've got a few, and they're very old-fashioned toys, you know, just stacking blocks and stuff like that. And so he goes into the room, and he takes out the toys, and he's got them on the floor, and he's playing with them. And, and I came out of the bathroom at the same time he came out of the bedroom, and it was obvious to me that he was headed downstairs And uh, remember now, he's two and a half years old. What he did was normal two-and-a-half-year-old behavior. And what I'm doing is illustrating to you how Grandma dealt with this. Because, folks, by the way, to clarify something, I've never had an original idea in my life. I am a plagiarist. I steal from Grandma, okay? That's all I do is just steal from her. Because I don't think we're going to improve upon her at all. So uh, he comes out of the bedroom, and the toys are still on the floor. And I said, "Uh, Patrick, you can't come out of the bedroom, you know, until the toys are picked up. Go back in there and pick up those toys. No! Okay, now, wrong response. Oh, yes, you're going to, young man. You're going to go right in there and pick those up right now, and I'm going to stand here until you do. Let's go. Come on. All you're going to do, folks, is get resistance. Why? Because you are giving this child something to resist against. You can call this Zen parenting if you want. Give your children nothing to resist against. Absolutely nothing, beginning at the age of two. Patrick says, no. And I looked at him and said, well, of course you're going to, and walked away. Giving him nothing to resist against. He was up there a few minutes. He came down. I went upstairs to check. Every toy had been picked up. Okay? This is how you get children, folks, from a very early age to do what they are told. You act like there is no option. You give them nothing to resist against. But the first thing, folks, is you've got to have their attention. Okay? And then you go to understanding number two. Each understanding is built on the last one. Understanding number two is you will do what I say. You are free, child of mine, to disagree with me. Completely free. That's what Patrick did. He's free to say, no. He's free. I don't care. His disagreement is of no consequence. None. And that's the way you guys have to act. That your children's disagreement, resistance, is of no consequence. You are free to disagree with me, child of mine, but you are not free to disobey. But I know you will disobey because... I'm familiar with the story of Genesis chapter 3, and I know that if God can't create 
obedient children, then neither can I. I didn't say you can't disobey. And by that I mean completely obedient. I didn't say you can't disobey. I said you're not free, which simply means child of mine, and check it out. I invite you to check it out. That when you disobey, I'm going to show you it ain't free. It ain't free in my house because it ain't never going to be free. And the quicker you learn this, the better for you and for me and for your fellow man and for everybody in this community. And so I'm just going to teach you it ain't free and let you make your own choices. One of the things that we used to say to our kids over and over again, but you get to a point in your relationship with your children when this means something. It doesn't mean anything until you get to a certain point. But we used to say to our children, hey kids, listen, you make your choices and we'll make ours. Meaning, I can't, I can't dictate to you the choices that you make. I cannot do that. But what I can do is make choices of my own in response to the choices that you make that are going to cause you to regret having made certain choices. Now, we said this about drug use. We sat down with our children when they were in their early teen years and said, you know, <clears throat> I'm not going to go through a long-winded drug education symposium here for you because all you guys need to know is drugs are bad for you and we don't want you using them. In fact, we won't tolerate it. But you guys make your choices and we'll make ours, okay? And it's as simple as that. And that says, two children, you are completely responsible for your own behavior. Completely, which is a, a message that has got to come across. But I'm a little ahead of myself here because I haven't gotten to the third understanding. The third understanding, again now, understanding number one, you'll pay more attention to me than I will ever again, generally speaking, pay to you. Understanding number two, you are going to do what I say. You're free to disagree, but you're not free to disobey. Understanding number three, you're going to do what I say, not because of bribe or brutality, persuasive explanation, reward, promise, complaint, or good reason. You're going to do what I say because I say so. People misunderstand my intent here. They think that what I'm recommending is that every time a child wants a reason that you say, for a decision that you have made, that you say, because I said so, and this is hardly what I'm recommending. Remember, what I'm talking about here are understandings. These understandings, you don't have to say them explicitly to children. They form the backdrop of your relationship with your kids. And because I said so is one of the messages that forms that backdrop. But I would highly recommend that you don't say it very much, if at all. I don't think our children ever heard because I said so. But it was an understanding, very definitely. In fact, the more you say it, <clears throat> the more you are going to sound like a broken record. And the more your children are going to be inclined to turn you off. You want your children to pay attention to you. So be an interesting person. Give reasons. Go right ahead. Now, but let me tell you something. The only time a child asks for a reason is when he does not like a decision you have made. A child never asks for a reason if the child likes the decision you've made, does he? If you say to your 15-year-old daughter, Oh, all right. You can go to Chicago for the weekend with an 18-year-old boy I've never met. <laughs> your 15-year-old daughter is not going to stand there and demand a reason. Okay? The only time they want reasons is when you make a decision that they don't like. 
this makes it, beginning to make it very easy, folks, okay? A second fact. These are not psychological theories. These are facts. Fact number two, if a child does not like a decision you've made, the child is not going to like the reason you give to support it. Never once, folks, after making a decision that a child did not like, and I'm talking about any one of you individually, you know, that caused the child great distress, says him, what? All my friends can? Why can't I? Never once, folks, have any of you been able with words to get this child to go, oh, I get it now. Of course you're right. I'm... How could I have been so dense, Mom? I... Thank you for clarifying realities to me and being such a good... No, it's never happened, folks, and it never will. If the child is in distress over the decision, the child is going to be in distress over the reason. He doesn't like the decision. He doesn't like the reason. And because this is a child, with again, as Proverbs 22.15 tells us, with foolishness bound in his heart, he doesn't like the decision, he doesn't like the reason, and there is a third step now. He doesn't like you. Okay, and this is when the I hate you, I wish you weren't my mother starts coming out, you know. All right. Go ahead and give reasons. <clears throat> there are only six. Now, folks, I'm making this real simple. And this is the truth. I'm not oversimplifying. This is it. There's only six reasons. We've determined that the only questions that you're answering are why not, essentially. Why not? There are six answers to why not. You're not old enough. You might get hurt. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. We don't believe in that. We don't like those kids. That's it. <laughs> and you can write the six reasons down on separate strips of paper. You're not old enough. You might get hurt. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. We don't believe in that. We don't like those kids. Fold up each strip of paper into a nice little package. Put all six into a goldfish bowl. Make it easily accessible. The next time your child goes, ah, why not just walk over to the goldfish bowl? Pick out one of the reasons and I get so excited at this moment. You want to take a guess as to which one it was? Okay, here it comes. We don't believe in that. How about that? I started doing this little illustration, I mean, and believe me, when I first started doing it about two years ago, it was totally facetious. I mean, all I was trying to illustrate was it doesn't matter whether you give the right reason or the wrong one, child's not going to agree with it. So just pick a reason out of a hat and give it to him, okay? You're going to get the same reaction. So why are you then required to give the right reason? Okay, so I was just trying to illustrate that with this supposedly facetious example. Well, Believe it or not, there are now people across America who have six reasons in a goldfish bowl, and they go for the goldfish. I'm serious. I, all over the country. In fact, there's a guy in Hartford, Connecticut, who wants to follow me around selling this as a package, a goldfish bowl and the six reasons. I'm, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not to that stage of tackiness in my life quite yet. But I got an email from a woman recently, I think she's in Alabama, and uh, she said that she heard me in the fall and she just wanted to give me some feedback that she went home and brought about a revolution in her home. And one of the things that she is doing and has been doing since is using the goldfish bowl technique. And she said, and now, John, whenever I start for the goldfish bowl, my seven-year-old says, just forget it then. <laughs> thought, yeah, that sounds like a revolution to me, you know. 
How many of you have argumentative children? Let's raise your hands if you have an argumentative child. Raise them up. Come on. It's time for confession time here. <laughs> okay. Actually, see, I told you that none of you have what you're calling strong-willed children, you know, or you all have strong-willed children. But, see, what we're wanting to do these days, l let me tell you a problem with American parents today. You, you, I'll, I'll just tell you what your problem is. Your problem is, is just demonstrated by your show of hands. You fell right into the trap. See, I'm sorry, but it was a trap. You want to think that there are mechanisms inside your children that cause your children to behave in certain ways and that you are not as powerful as these mechanisms. They were born with them. There's nothing you can do about them. Okay? Strong-willed is one of them. Argumentative is another. You know, then we've got ADD and ODD and all these other DDs that we're coming up with now, you know? All of this, you know, and, and the, the mentality that, that, that accepts this is a mentality that says, my child is stronger than I am, or at least the mechanism inside my child is stronger than I am. You see, you, the minute you begin thinking this way, you pull the rug out from under yourself. None of you have argumentative children. Get over that idea. Get over the idea that there's something inside your child that causes him to behave in these overpowering ways. Each one of you who just raised a hand, each and every one of you, is a parent who flings wide the door to argument on a repeated basis. One of the things that you guys are going to have to do is accept it's you. It's not your child. It's you. But that's liberating, you see. If it's a mechanism inside your child that he was born with, there's nothing you can do about that. But the minute you accept what the average American parent doesn't want to accept, and that is... It's you. <laughs> it's liberating. You can go home and do something about that today. Okay, if it's you. Because you are the only person you can change in this equation, let me tell you. You are the only person over whose choices you have control. Let me assure you. No, none of you have argumentative children. You fling wide the door to argument. Your children charge through before you get the door shut and you call them argumentative. It's you. Now, I'm going to teach you guys how to never argue with a child again, ever. It's going to take me less than three minutes. If anybody in here ever argues with a child again, you, obviously, were not listening to me during the next three minutes. You must have attention deficit disorder. You didn't take enough Ritalin before you came here, you know. Every argument between parent and child begins with a parent making a decision the child does not like. The child reacts to the decision, demanding a reason. Go ahead and give one. I told you, there are six. Pick one out of a goldfish bowl. He doesn't like the decision. He doesn't like the reason. He says, that's really dumb, or uh-uh, or whatever he says in response to the reason that you give, at which point you reach the fork in the road. Parents who take this fork I call it argument alley because it's a dead end. They get into argument after argument after argument with their children. What do they do? They make a choice. You, folks, you make a choice to go down this road and try and explain yourself to your children. If you listen to me, I'll explain it to you, and you'll understand. You're in the Gifted and Talented program. I know that you'll understand my explanation. And what does the child do? Folks, immediately you are, write this down, giving your children something to resist against. 
You folks are your own worst enemies and been there, done that. I'm going to tell you about that in a few minutes. Been there, done that. You're your own worst enemies. You're giving your children things to resist against in well-intentioned ways. What does the child do the minute you start to explain? He clings tenaciously, stubbornly to his position, insanely to his irrational thinking, doesn't he? Which makes you upset. It gets you frustrated. He's not listening to you. He's not letting you complete sentences. You're getting really aggravated, and then you blow up. Why do I even bother trying to explain myself? You never listen anyway. You've got a thick skull. I don't know how you got into the gifted and talented program. And then you feel bad. (laughs) There I go again. (laughs) When am I going to stop yelling? (sighs) I'm sorry I didn't mean to yell. Mommy's had a bad day. (sighs) All right, maybe we can talk about it. See, and then immediately, folks, you begin to backtrack and try and find some compromise because you're feeling bad suddenly, you see? But just go down this road. Go down this road. It's called Easy Street. Your child goes, "Uh uh-uh, that's really dumb. I hate you. I wish you weren't my mother. And all you do, folks, is just look at this child and go, you know, if he's eight years old, you say it this way. If I was eight years old, I'd feel the same way. Yeah, man, I'd hate me too right now. (laughs) Listen, this is a private moment for you. (laughs) And you just walk off. You walk away, okay? What could be simpler? You give him nothing to resist against, okay? Absolutely nothing. And see, does it work with teenagers? Oh, yeah, sure it does. My son, Eric, you know, he's 31 years old. He's a commercial pilot for First Union National Bank. He's a good husband, a good father, et cetera, et cetera. I'll tell you a story in a minute. Lives two doors down from us, good neighbor, good friend. Um, you know, Eric, when he was 15 years old, he comes to me and he goes, Dad, I want to talk about getting a motorcycle. I looked at him and I said, Son, this is going to be the shortest conversation we've ever had. <laughs> Why? Well, because you're not getting a motorcycle. You're not getting a motorcycle this year, next year, the year after that, as long as you live in my house. You can't have a motorcycle even if you buy it with your own money. Bring it home, it's mine. Dad, all my friends are getting them. Then you're going to be the most special kid in the neighborhood, son, because you're not going to get one. See, I'm giving him nothing to resist against, folks, you know? Absolutely nothing. Dad, I hate it when you do this. I know you do. Man, I'd hate it too if I was your age. I'd hate it. No, Dad, I hate that too. I hate that psychology stuff. I just hate it. Why can't I get a motorcycle? Well, son, I'm going to tell you. Cool off, man. You don't have to do that to get an answer from me. You're not getting a motorcycle because motorcycles are dangerous and you're not old enough to appreciate the danger and you won't be for many years to come. When you are, go out and buy a motorcycle. But don't do it on my time, my dollar. Do it on your own. You're free to do it that way. By the way, folks, when I was having this conversation with him, I had a Harley Davidson Sportster in my garage. See, he thought I was going to buy him a motorcycle because I have one, you know? I mean, isn't that as silly as thinking I'm going to let him bring his girlfriend over and spend the night with him because I sleep with a woman every night, you know? (laughs) No. 
Just because I do something doesn't mean my kids are going to do it, okay? And I'm going to have no trouble separating those two issues, all right? Now, does any of you think, does any of you think that, I mean, did I give Eric the right answer? Motorcycles are dangerous. You're not old enough to appreciate the danger, and you won't be for many years to come. Just a combination of reasons one and two. They're there in the goldfish bowl, okay? That's all it is. Did I give him the right answer? Okay, he's he's a good student. He's a smart kid. He's smart. Neither of my kids are gifted. I'm the only parent in America without gifted children. Uh, there were times when my self-esteem really suffered because of that, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> does, does any of you think he went, Dad, this is just incredible. I mean, I, I walked in here wanting a motorcycle, and you said those few words, and I'm going to walk out of here, and <laughs> I don't want a motorcycle anymore, and... Gosh, Dad, my life's going to be a whole lot easier if I don't want a motorcycle, isn't it? Dad, thanks a lot. You're a great guy. I really love you, Dad. Does anybody think he said that? Absolutely not. No, he looked at me and he went, No, Dad, I know motorcycles are dangerous. You've told me they are. I'm not stupid, Dad. Dad, if you buy me a motorcycle, I'll be careful. I won't get hurt. I promise. What's he supposed to say? Now, see, if you don't go down this road, you never say anything you regret. And if you never say anything you regret, you never feel compelled to backtrack. So I looked at him and I said, going down this road, Eric, if I was 15, I'd want a motorcycle too. And if I came to my parents when I was 15 and asked them for a motorcycle, they'd say the same thing to me I just said to you. And, and I got to tell you, this is kind of funny, really. It's funny to me. I'd have said the same thing to them you just said to me. That's kind of funny and I know it's not funny to you. <laughs> it would be rude, son, of me to stand here and laugh in front of you, you know, so I'll see you later. And I start walking up. You've got to do it fast. You just got to, I call it pulling the plug on the power struggle. And you just walk away with the plug in your hand, okay? You are in control, folks, over whether there's a power struggle or not. You give your children something to resist or not. You make the choices. You do. So you pull the plug out of the wall as quickly as you can and you walk off. And Eric goes, Dad, Dad, wait a second. You're not going to walk away from this. This is important to me, Dad. We're going to talk about this. Now, Dad, you're not going to walk away from this, Dad. We're not done. Hey, Dad, we're not done. And I turned around at the door to the next room and I said, Bye, gosh, Eric. I forgot to tell you one thing. What? We're done. (laughs) And out of there I walked. And the consequences of this, by the way, are that If you do this, your child will hate you for a period of time. Hate. Oh, children don't really hate. Yes, they do. They don't just get slightly annoyed. They hate. And it's a pure, refined hate. It's the epitome of hate, you know? Of course they hate. Your child will hate you for a few days or a few hours. You know, Eric hated me for, oh, he wouldn't speak to me for three days. I guess he hated me for three days. He wouldn't speak to me. It's a blessing. <laughs> you know, people say, my child isn't talking to me. I go, take the vacation, okay? I mean, <laughs> stop worrying about this. Because a young child can, you know, hate you for several hours. Older child, several days, maybe a week or two. But look, folks, within several hours to a week, this child's going to have to come back and ask you for something else. <laughs> And to elevate the likelihood that you will say, sure, you can do that, he's got to pretend to like you again. Okay? Now, by age three, Grandma had this in place. She had it in place. 
And these three understandings, you'll pay attention to me, you'll do what I say, because I say so, they established grandma's authority over this child. Established it. Somebody in the lobby during the break between these presentations said to me, John, is it ever too late? Well, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, dole out homilies here. Of course you get to a point with a child where it's too late. If you have never established control over the only thing you can control, the relationship, then at some point during your child's teenage years, probably mid-15, 16, somewhere in there, uh, a line will be crossed and you'll never be able to get what you haven't gotten to that point. And society is going to have to be the grand teacher in this child's life. But um, I'm living proof that it's never too late, up until that point anyway, that uh, there's a lot you can do before you reach that line. How am I living proof? Well, because Eric, Eric, at the age of 10, in January of 1979, after a number of conferences with his third grade teacher, she finally told us what she had wanted to tell us since the beginning of the year, Mrs. Stewart, John Roseman's epiphany. Mr. and Mrs. Roseman, I've been reluctant to tell you this, but I have to, because I don't know anything else, any other way of getting your attention. I've had six conferences with you now since the beginning of the year, and I've obviously failed to get your attention because nothing has changed with your son. Your son, Eric, is the worst behaved child in my class, and not only that, he is the worst behaved child that I've seen in 20 years of teaching. <sighs> well, that was hard to swallow. By today's standards, folks, Eric in the third grade would be diagnosed as having attention deficit disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and a learning disability. Actually, we're combining the two, the first two of those together now, and calling them bipolar disorder. And folks, by the way, there is politics behind this. If you understand to manage care, and I'm taking a little tangent here, if you understand the increasingly conservative politics of managed care, then you begin to understand why they are assigning children medical diagnoses and giving children medicine to greater and greater and greater degrees. It's the only way to get insurance reimbursement. Our children are victims of a health care system that is completely out of control, completely, because of managed care. Because the individual patient decision is being completely bypassed by insurance companies and managed care providers. And I won't go any further into this than that. But you are going to see the demise of attention deficit disorder because insurance companies are less and less willing to pay for it and the rise of bipolar disorder now. Okay? The increasing mystification of these, uh, these issues. Okay. Eric is the worst behaved child in the class. ADD, scale of 1 to 10, 10. ODD, scale of 1 to 10, 10. LD, he's reading a year behind grade level. Scale of 1 to 10, probably a 7 and climbing. <clears throat> Here's a snapshot of Eric. January, July of 1978, the summer before his third grade year, his fateful third grade year with Mrs. Stewart. 
<clears throat> we're in a camping store in western North Carolina. It's a small store, uh, 30 feet by 30 feet maybe. And there's a lot of people in it. We're on a whitewater river known as the Nantahala. And it's the height of the tourist season. The store has maybe 25 people in the store. Eric brings me a pair of hiking boots. Dad, he says in a plaintive voice, Will you please buy me these hiking boots? I've always wanted hiking boots like this. Please, please, Dad, please. I looked at the boots. His feet are growing. I can't afford them. I looked at him and I said, Eric, Mom and Dad are not going to be able to. He jerks the box out of my hand. He takes two steps backwards, smashes the box to the floor in this crowded store, screaming at the top of his lungs. You never buy me anything I want, not ever! I spoke in Bryson City, North Carolina, which is 15 miles from where this incident occurred in 1978, last year in February, about a year and two months ago. I'm before an audience of about 200 people in a school in Bryson City, and I tell the story. And I say, this happened just 15 miles down the road 21 years ago. After the talk, a woman comes up to me, hangs around the book sales table until everybody leaves. I think it's her. Her is the woman who hangs around until the very end and then asks the impossible question. Okay? My five-year-old's on heroin and beats me up every day. Do you have any quick advice? You know? And then won't let me leave, okay, until I solve this problem for her. But anyway, I think it's her, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. I, I've got a 50-mile drive to Asheville. Willie and I have got a nice room at the Grove Park Inn, and I want to get back. And I haven't had dinner. We're going to meet in a restaurant, have dinner. I mean, it's, you know, I, the last thing I want to deal with is her. And so I'm packing up the books, and she comes over and kind of gets over the book sales table. John? John? And I look up, and I go, Yeah? This is absolutely amazing. For the last 21 years, I have worried about how that child is doing. <laughs> I have thought about him four or five times a year. I said, what are you talking? She said, I was in the store that day. She was working there. She said, John, we talked, meaning her and her co-workers, talked about nothing else for a week. None of us had ever seen a child behave like this in our lives, okay? And I'm just kind of giving you the... You know, this was Eric. Does any of you have an Eric? Okay? See, so a lot of you came in here with what you thought were really big problems. Here's a really big problem, okay? And I looked at this woman and I said, Well, you've just given me a great gift. I'm 52 years old, and when you get to be my age, you know, you begin to wonder... You have reason to wonder for sure whether, uh, you know, you're embellishing tales, you know, to make yourself look better or whatever, make them look worse than they were. And I, so this really happened. She said, oh, yes. It really happened. I said, and it was as bad as I say it is. Describe it. She said, John, you cannot describe it as bad as it was. That was Eric, folks, in 1978, early 1979. One year later, January of 1980, his fourth grade teacher tells us that he is delightful. She wishes she has 27 more like him in her class. <coughs> he is uh, responsible. He does his work on time. He's uh, 
got a delightful personality. He's a model for the other children. Uh, and every time she looks at his file, I remember this distinctly, Mr. and Mrs. Roseman, I, I find myself making sure that uh, the right sh that Eric's papers are the only papers in the file because uh, the Eric Roseman that I'm teaching this year does not uh, fit the description that these other teachers give to him. He was completely rehabilitated. He was working a year above grade level. What did we do during this year? Well, let me tell you what we didn't do. During this year, he took no medication. He received no tutoring. He received no special attention or consideration of any kind at school. And on the day we began, what I retrospectively call the Rosemond Revolution, we told the worst behaved child Mrs. Stewart had seen in 20 years of teaching. A child reading a year behind grade level with no buildup at all. I tell parents, let me take a little tangent here. <coughs> if you are going to make a change in your children's lives, don't build up to it. You'll never get there. The building will be excruciatingly painful every step of the way. If you want to go from here to here, get all your ducks in a row while you're down here, plan very carefully what you're going to do, and then on a fateful day, just go to here. Okay? We said to Eric, Eric, from now on you do your homework in your room. We will not be seated at the kitchen table with you anymore. Um, if you have a question, don't yell for us because we're not coming upstairs. Bring your books and bring your book and your paper and your pen and come downstairs and find us. And uh, Eric, you may ask and receive help with two homework-related problems a night, only two. If the third request for help is more significant to a grade the next day or even a grade on your report card or even passing the third grade than was either of the first two requests for help. Sorry, you've hit your quota. You're not getting three questions answered. You're getting two on any given night. And Eric, the answer that we provided, the help, can only ex will not exceed five minutes. Because after five minutes, if you don't get it, we are obviously not the people to teach it to you. And Eric, um, <clears throat> furthermore, Mom and I are never again going to say the word homework in this house. We're not going to say it to you. We're not going to say it to your sister. And we kept this promise, folks. We never, and I'll say it again. We are talking to the worst behaved child Mrs. Stewart has seen in 20 years of teaching. We are talking to a child who's reading a year behind grade level, who's not finishing any classroom assignments. We're sitting there at the kitchen table pushing and prodding the homework process to completion every single night. This is who we're talking to. We are never going to say the word homework again. Bet on it. We are never going to say, do you have homework? Or have you finished your homework? Let's see your homework. Do you have any problems with your homework? Is there anything about your homework you want to discuss? Never. Which means, Eric, if you do your homework, it'll be because you decide to do it. You make the decision, not us. We're not going to call you to the kitchen table anymore and say it's time for homework. You make the decision. Which means you may decide to start on your homework at 3.30. You may decide to start at 7.30. But here's the decision you won't make. You'll put your homework away every night at 8 o'clock. There will be no exceptions made to this. and We don't care what's done and what's not done. If you tell us at 8 o'clock you've got a major science project due tomorrow, you just remembered it a half hour ago, and you've only got 5% of it done, and it counts 50% of your grades, sorry. It's not my problem. 
This is your life, Eric. From now on, it's your life. And one year later, folks. One year later. In fact, three months later. See, Mrs. Stewart called us in to tell us in January of 1979, Eric was going to fail the third grade. Three months later, in, August, in April of 1979, she sat down with us and she said, I never thought I'd, have to, I'd be able to say this. But it looks like he's going to pass the third grade. He might have to go to summer school, but he's going to pass. I don't know what you guys are doing, but keep on doing it. I'm telling you the story, folks, because, listen, if Willie and I can do this with, you never bought me anything I want, not ever, then you can go home and you can do this, too. This doesn't require a degree in psychology. Folks, in January of 1979... Willie and I realized if we'd gotten to this point because of psychology, by gosh, psychology was not going to get us out of this. We turned our parenting 180 degrees in January of 1979. We created the Rosemond Revolution. We went from here to here. Actually, we went from here to here on one day and from here to here on another day and from here to here on another day. Second thing our kids did, uh, we did, was our kids came home from school one day. And, I mean, we had sent to school two children who, you know, they, they never lifted a finger around the house. Ever. You know, it, it, getting them to do anything was like pulling teeth. Well, it's just like toys. If you give a child too many, he's not going to pick them up. If you don't give a child any chores, he's not going to do any. He's going to act like a bum in your house, Okay. Our kids came home from school one day. All the ducks were in a row, folks. Don't do this impulsively. There was a seven-day calendar on the refrigerator that said your chores, Eric's chores, Amy's chores, Monday through Friday. Blue chores, red chores, green chores. Blue had to be done in the morning. <coughs> red immediately after lunch on non-school days, after school on school days. Green after supper. We assigned to two children who'd never lifted a finger around the house all of the housework in one day. See, folks, I mean, there's some of you out there who are going, oh, that's, that's incredible, that's just amazing. No, this is how you let children know you are serious. You see, if you play around with this like this, well, now, we're, we're going to try and get you guys into the habit of doing a little bit more around the house, and we're going to assign each of you a chore a week. And if you guys, you know, do well with one chore, then we're going to give you another one, and we're going to let you get used to one at a time, you know. Folks, you'll never get there. This is how you let children know you are dead serious. Okay? You've got to go home, folks, get your ducks in a row, and then on a fateful day, you've got to, you know, present yourself to your children as if the body snatchers have come. Okay? You look like their parents, but you aren't acting like the same people you acted like the day before, all right? If you're going to create a revolution, folks, the revolution is going to be in how you present yourself to your children. It's style is what it is. These two children came in. We said, kids, these are your chores. You guys are doing all the housework from now on. You've seen us do it for 10 and 6 years, and you know what needs to be done. And if you have any questions, there's a notebook full of job descriptions on the counter. These chores take precedence over everything. They're your obligation to this family. Your obligation to this family takes precedent over everything. Okay? The only things not on the list, folks, were mowing grass. They were 10 and 6, mowing grass, washing clothes, ironing clothes, and cooking. 
And as they got older, we added those to the list. At 13, excuse me, 12, mown grass. Eric, when he was 12, Amy, when she was 12, mowing grass, okay? Thank the Lord for, what is it, self-propelled mowers, all right? A little diminutive 12-year-old girl can mow the grass, all right? <laughs> 13, they started washing and ironing their own clothes. 14, we assigned to them responsibility for, kicking, for cooking a meal a week. And the rule was you cannot open a can. Mom and I, when we cook, we can open cans. Because <laughs> we've already learned to cook. But as you're learning to cook, you can't open cans. You just tell us what you need, we'll go get it, and uh, we'll have it ready for you, and we'll even provide you with a little guidance. And uh, Eric, by the time he went to college, was a gourmet cook. I mean, he loved to cook, and he's a great cook. He taught his wife how to cook. Amy, now... When she went to college, she knew how to fix two things, because this is what we always got from Amy, spaghetti or chili, okay? <laughs> but uh, her husband, we figured her husband would correct that, and, you know, he has. <clears throat> Here's your chores. If you have any questions, Mom and I will be in the, uh, in the living room. Short and sweet, folks. Short and sweet. The more you explain yourselves, the more you give your children what? Something to resist against. Keep it short and sweet. Went into the kitchen, leaving two children <laughs> in the kitchen. Well, then we heard some mumbling, and the kids came in the living room, and Eric being the spokesperson for the two. What are you guys going to pay us? <laughs> We're going to let you live here. Well, you already let us live here. I know, but it's been free up until now. <laughs> it's not free any longer, but Eric, you, Amy, you do your chores. We'll put heat in your room in the winter and air condition it in the summer and provide you essential transportation, medical care, food, clothing. <laughs> any other questions? <laughs> well, everything's on the list. What are you guys going to do? Oh, Mom and I are retiring. See, to some degree, there's value in the completely off-the-wall explanation. It gives them nothing to resist against. Okay? So they start doing their chores. And we had, we had a little index, we had little index cards up around the house um, on their mirror and uh, in the, uh, at their place setting at the kitchen table and on the back door, don't forget your chores. And about a week and a half later, the two kids come and they go, you know, Mom, Dad, take down the signs, okay? We, we bring friends over, and they want to know what they mean, and we explain, and then they laugh at us, you know, because nobody else has to do By the way, the kids in the neighborhood started calling our children Cinderella and Cinderfella. <laughs> oh, and it horribly depressed their self-esteem, you know? I said, okay, so you guys don't need these reminders. No, we don't need the reminders. Come on, the calendar's there. We know, you know, okay. All right, fine, I'll take down the, the sign. So we took down the signs, and about three days later, Saturday, beautiful early spring day, late February, mid-February, whatever, 1979. Eric is out in the cul-de-sac Saturday afternoon after lunch playing baseball with his friends, and uh, 
his after-lunch chore has not been done. I call him in, point it out to him. He tells me he's going to do it later. He wanted to play baseball. It was starting right after lunch. I said, no, Eric, you go in and you do it now. But, Dad, we're in the middle of the game. I don't care. The game shouldn't have, you shouldn't have not gotten in the game in the first place. Go in and do your chore. Dad, I'll, I'll do two later, okay? Please. No, nope. do one now. Go on. In the house. Please. Nope. Go on. Now. All right. Went inside, did his chore. Started back outside. All right, now, folks. You've got to teach your children you're serious. You've got to. And what the overwhelming majority of you need to accept is, your children don't take you seriously. And there's nothing in them that's caused that. It's you. Watch this. Where are you going? I'm going back outside, Dad. I finished my chore. It's done. They're still playing baseball. Maybe I can get in the game. Uh, I'm sorry, you can't. What do you mean? Yeah, pro they'll probably let me back in. No, you can't get back in. Why, what, what are you talking about? Eric, what I'm talking about is this. You're going to your room for the rest of the day, and you're going to bed immediately after dinner. Why? Because I had to be chore cop. That's why. Uh, Eric, you know, if, um, if you need a chore cop, I'll be a chore cop. That's for sure. But let me point out to you one thing. First of all, you told me three days ago you didn't need a reminder. Now I have to remind you to do your chore and remind you that they take priority over everything. It's an obligation that you have. It's not a game that we're playing around here. And uh, secondly, Eric, if you need a chore cop, you know, uh, I'll be a chore cop. But uh, let me tell you that every time you need a chore cop, you're going to jail, beginning today. Uh, Dad, I didn't know. Well, now you do. All right, it won't happen again. That's the idea. <laughs> Dad, all right, I'm sorry, okay? That's the idea. Dad, please, okay, please, just... Uh, Dad, it's, uh, uh, this is the first time, and I want it to be the last. Dad, I don't believe this. I wouldn't either. <laughs> Dad, you're not really going to make me. Yes, I am. Dad, go. Dad, this isn't there. Okay, I've learned something, folks. I'll pass it on to you. Any time you make a decision that causes a child to say, ah, that's not fair, you've just done the right thing. Keep on doing it, okay? Eric went to his room. And no, we did not go up there after two hours and go, all right, we just wanted to give you a taste of what we might have to do next time. Now, let's not let this happen again, because I hate to be this kind of a parent, so go on outside and play, but let's not have this, okay? No, 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 no. He stayed in his room the rest of the day. He went to bed immediately after dinner. Now, there are some people in this audience, I know you're out there, it's okay, who are uncomfortable with what I did. It's kind of like it's making you kind of squeamish inside, you know, it's like, ooh, I just can't do that. I can't be that kind of a parent. Okay, and I'll just bet, I'll just bet that the very person who's thinking that way, and I've been there, done that, is harping on the same issues day after day after day after day. What is it going to take? for you to do your chores without me telling you they have to be done. What's it going to take? That calendar on the refrigerator was for you, and I'm the only one who reads it. See, folks, you're your own worst enemies. 
You make choices that result in you yelling, and you can make other choices that result in you stop yelling completely. Completely. And that is not pie in the sky, as evidenced by the number of hands up to that question in the first session. How many of you were raised by a mother you obeyed who never yelled? For those of you who weren't here, half the hands went up. Okay? Now you can make the same choices by demonstrating to your children that you are dead serious. You can stop behavior problems in their tracks. Does anybody want to guess how many times, including that one, Eric had to go to his room for not doing a chore or doing it right the first time, needing a chore cop, before he never needed a chore cop again? Including that one, how many times? Once. Nope. Those of you who think once, believe in magic. No, no, no. No, no, no. I knew you'd say that. I was tricking you, actually. I was setting you up for that. My apologies. No, there's a saying, the third time's the charm. Now, I can't tell you it's going to take three times and three times only, but I will guarantee you it will take no less than three. No less than three experiences of this sort. See, the first time it happens, the child just thinks, hey, you're having a bad day. The second time it happens, the child thinks, hey, you didn't take your medicine that day. Okay? The third time, it begins to sink in, something's different here. You know, I better get with the program. And folks, I've seen, not just with Eric, but with other children as well, just behavior problems that are outrageous, just being brought to a dead standstill by parents who are willing for the first time in their children's lives to demonstrate to them they mean exactly what they say. And this, folks, is how you stop screaming. And it's a wonderful thing to stop screaming and yelling. It's a wonderful thing. I was saying out there to somebody else, the problem with today's parents is <laughs> they're the ones being driven crazy. The child is driving the parents crazy. Take a page from grandma's book and learn how to drive your children nuts, okay? Seriously, I, you know, I would misbehave. My mother never felt bad about it. When I misbehaved, my mother made me feel bad about it. And today's parents, their children misbehave and they end up feeling bad about it. It's a topsy-turvy parenting world that we live in today. The last thing we did, and uh, folks, I'm absolutely convinced, by the way, absolutely, that uh, television is a uh, <laughs> sounds like uh, something a Republican would say an evil technology I'm convinced of it I, I, I just you know it, it sits there in people's homes like it used to sit in ours and, and it just destroys the spiritual life of the family Destro it just sucks it right out of you you know, you put the TV there and you arrange the furniture so that it all faces in one direction, like that's some altar that you're worshiping at or something, you know. And you turn it on and every evening you all sit there and you watch television together. No, 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 you watch it alone. Television doesn't bring families together. Communication does. Intimacy does. Television just tears us apart, separates us. We're all sitting there each in our own little audiovisual tunnels while we're watching TV. But you might as well be 50 miles away from the person you're sitting next to. Right? 
It doesn't matter that he's watching the same program. You're communicating with him about as much as you're communicating with the guy down the street, five houses over. And for that reason, because we realized that if we were going to change our family, if we were going to have a family of value, that we were going to have to get rid of this thing that we were worshiping at every evening, but also for the fact that I read a book in 1979 called The Plug-In Drug by Marie Wynn. It's still in print. I would recommend it to you. I'd also recommend a book by Jane Healy called The Endangered Mind. Also a book by Clifford Stoll, High Tech Heretic. Why Computers Should Not Be in America's Schools. And, uh, you know, th these technolo technologies, folks, we're just rushing to judgment with them. You know, they're so glitzy and they're so new and they're so novel and they're so, you know, fancy and everything else and so easy to master. That's part of the problem, too. And a growing number of people, myself included, are absolutely convinced that this whole business and taking a tangent here with computers, <laughs> really bad news. Computers do not teach people how to think. And before we should give children access to this kind of information that the Internet gives them, we need to teach our children how to think. You don't teach children how to think by plugging them into a computer. That's done in the home through your values education that takes place. I also became convinced <clears throat> from reading the plug-in drug that television was disabling our children's attention span. How? Because every three minutes on the screen, the picture changes. Three minutes, three seconds, excuse me. On the average, 3.5 seconds, the picture changes. Flip. 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 Constantly. Flip. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what program the child is watching, because every program does this. Sesame Street does this, only faster. Cartoons do it, only faster. The Playboy Channel does it. The Penthouse Channel, if they've got one, I don't know. You know, the worst sex and violence channel on television does this. And so does the most benign, supposedly benign children's program do this. Doesn't matter what program the child is watching. This is the experience. And I came to the conclusion after reading her book, Marie Wynn's book, and beginning to do some independent research that... Uh, you cannot sit the developing brain in front of something that does this for any length of time and expect that this brain is going to develop a long attention span. And indeed, one of Eric's major problems was he couldn't pay attention to anything for any significant length of time. But the good news is, folks, that if you have a problem with brain development and you intervene in it before age 12, the brain, brain is very, very plastic until that time. You can turn things around very quickly. Our kids came home from school one day. There was no TV in the house. And all the furniture had been arranged in that room into a social arrangement instead of the anti-social arrangement that it had been in. Our kids came home and said, where's the TV? It's gone. When's it going to be fixed? It wasn't broken. We gave it away. Salvation Army. You want to watch it? Go down there. <laughs> well, when are we getting our new one? We're not getting another one. What do you mean? Like, for how long? Ever. No, you can't mean it. Yeah, we mean it. And I'll never forget this. This indicated to me it was working. Eric looked at Amy. Amy looked at Eric. 
And Eric looked back at us and went, Why? Why have you guys suddenly gotten so weird? And I knew, yes. The revolution had taken hold. There was no turning it back now. And folks, three months later, Mrs. Stewart sits down and says, I don't know what you guys are doing, but keep on doing it. And you see, I, what I want, I'm telling you this story because I want you to understand that I'm standing up here in front of you folks today, and I've got you know, all these impressive credentials. But in the, in the final analysis, I am standing up here in front of you because I've been there, I've done that. I'm standing up here in front of you because of Eric Rosemond. In fact, we were sitting on our back porch two years ago with a reporter from the New York Times. He happened to come over, walk up on the back porch, and I introduced him. I said, this is so-and-so from the New York Times, Eric. He walks over and he goes, hi, I'm Eric. My father's career. And he is. He is my career. And I tell this story around the country because I want you to understand that, if, again, if we can do this with Eric, you can do this at your house, too. I doubt that very many of you, if any of you, have a problem like Eric, okay? And if we can do it with Eric, well, you can go home and do it, too. And I want you to understand that you don't do this. Whatever you have to do, with whatever child you have to do it, you don't do it by following the advice of the same group of people that got us into this mess in the first place. You've got to unplug yourself from, from psychology, which is a nefarious, secular religion. Unplug yourself from it. Unplug yourself into the same sources of parenting tradition that grandma de derived all of her common sense from. And folks, again, it's simply choices. That's all it is, choices. And you make them. I came here, I'm a parenting speaker, but I'm also a motivational speaker. I came here to Indianapolis today for the same reason I, I come to every city in the United States on my incessant touring, and that is to motivate, hopefully, each and every one of you to go home today and to fling wide the doors of each and every of your houses, one of your houses, and step inside and go, Hey, kids! Hey, kids, listen up! Things will never be the same around here again. <laughs> Thanks a lot for coming out today, folks. I appreciate it. All right, so that is some really good uh, material right there. So a few of the major concepts that really stuck out to me, and, and I've noticed uh, this in, in other couples and, and even in my, my own relationship before I started to listen to some of this stuff, is the fact that couples seem to be more married to, the, to their children than married to their spouses. So it's like the child takes center stage and takes all the attention, and I really feel that that is unhealthy. And I, I would agree with what John Roseman said. Like when that happens, it's, it's sort of out of order, right? The child is supposed to be part of the family, not the center of the family. So when the mom uh, is spending all their attention on the child and not on the husband, and when the husband does the same thing, man, that there's, there starts to be foundational cracks and that, that's not healthy. So you want to try to avoid that. 
if you can. That's why like going on date nights and, and having that alone time is such a huge uh, part, in my opinion, to be to being a really good parent. You actually can become a better parent by spending less time with your kids and more time with your spouse. Kids, whether they know it or not, will really appreciate that stability. All right, so those lectures were just a uh, kind of a warm-up for some of the books that he has available. So I'm going to read those uh, some of these titles to you right now. Uh, there'll be more in the show notes, but uh, the, the book that started it all for me was called uh, The Well-Behaved Child. Um, he also has another book called Making the Terrible Twos Terrific. And then there's another book called Teen Proofing. Fostering Responsible Decision-Making in Your Teenager. So that covers a pretty broad age range from from two all the way up through teenager that you can be uh, improving your parenting skill. And I just, after looking on Amazon, I just discovered he's got a new book out uh, that is actually available on Audible, and it was called Grandma Was Right After All. And I'm sure it covers a similar material of what you just heard. But I'd really, really recommend... Um, reading the well-behaved child that's that's and i say that because it made such a a huge difference for me so uh, i know you just heard a lot of the concepts but that book has a lot of practical tips and i just want to share with you uh some of the stories that that worked for me so i mentioned before that my uh you know five-year-old son at the time was just just a nightmare throwing temper tantrums and having trouble at school and and then I, i read this this book, The Well-Behaved Child, and me and my wife uh, talked about it, and then I had her listen to uh, the lectures that you guys just listened to, and and we started started putting these these things into action. And I want to talk about three things that I did that you could potentially do a, as a starter. So the first concept uh, that was mentioned in the book, and I think he he alluded to it in the lecture if, if he didn't outright say it, but it's a concept called alpha talk. And it's basically you just tell your kid what to do. You don't say, hey, you know, do you want to do this? Uh, hey, you know, daddy would really like it if you picked up the toys, blah, blah, blah. You just say it and do it. And you say it firmly. And and here's what I did. I, I would say things. I would be like, Josiah, pick up your toys right now. And then I would leave the room and I I didn't give him a chance to push back, right? I didn't give anything uh, for him to resist against. And I said it really firm and confident. And then I would go around the corner like, and I would peek. It was, it was kind of silly. I'm like, oh my goodness, is this like really going to work? I was really, I was like hiding from my son. So I wanted to see if he, he would, he would actually listen to me. And, and I wasn't there for him to to argue with. I was out of the room and I'm peeking around the corner and, and and I'll be darned more times than not. He started listening to me. And that's when I like, man, there, there's something to this. So then I started what's called the ticket system. And this is also covered in the book. Uh, but basically when it's kind of like a, a three strikes you're out sort of thing. And you, you, you cut out these little tickets and, and me and my wife just put them on the refrigerator. So uh, when you're first starting out, especially that young, you, you basically give the kid five chances. Okay, so on five little pieces of paper, well, we've got his name written out. We've got just our top three offenses uh, that our son was, was doing at the time. And they were, um, he, would, he would talk back a lot, right? He was also what my wife calls a woodpecker, <laughs> which means he would ask a question and we would say no and he would 
ask the question again. And he would just keep asking the same question and he would pecker you until he got what he wanted. So whenever he did that, that was that was a foul, right? You you lose a ticket for doing that. And then the final thing was first time obedience. So we would say do something. If he didn't do the first time, we would take a ticket away. So we really became sort of like NBA referees, you know, just calling fouls, just going through the house. And, and the more you can sort of call the foul in an unemotional, controlled way, the the better it is. So uh, Josiah would do something. He would he would talk back to me, and I'm like, "Okay, buddy, you just lost a ticket." And the first time, like I explained what was going to happen to him, and he's a he's a really social kid. So putting him in his room was my punishment du jour. Uh, he hated to be alone and away from the fun. So when we would go through these tickets, the first time he lost, it was all five tickets. It was basically five strikes, and you're out. Um, and the coolest thing, it doesn't matter if, if it's like noon, say it's a weekend, it doesn't matter if he loses all five tickets at noon or five minutes before bedtime. It's, it's to your room, you're in the room the rest of the night and you're going to bed early. Like that was the punishment. And the first time he lost all his tickets, he was like a caged monkey. I mean, we put him in his room and he was screaming. He was using his fingernails and scratching the wall and he was going bananas and I had to like heap punishment on top. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I took away toys after that. I, I had to spank him and that finally started to get through him, but he was just berserk. And I was really resolved at that point. That's when I realized that, man, I have been a pushover for way too long and him acting like this sort of caged animal, uh, just like the lecture said, man, it's just an indication when the child is uncomfortable, you're doing something wrong. And at first I felt a little bad, but I got over that quickly because I realized this this is a bad sign. If if, if the kid is acting this way uh, for being sent to his room, uh, he's got a problem and I need to be part of that solution. So it took probably maybe three times of losing uh, all his tickets before he started to realize that um, that that his mother and I were very serious about this. Anyway, long story short, with, with that ticket system, in probably two weeks' time, the uh, first week was kind of rough, the second week was a little better, uh, and into that third week, I'm telling you, if you looked at, at my son at week number three versus you know day number one where we started these new techniques, it is night and day difference, and, and we haven't looked back since. Now, it's not like we're perfect parents with the uh, perfectly behaved children, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I can say one thing for certain. We are definitely better parents. Um, at least our skill level is is better than it was before uh, these lectures and before these books and before these techniques. And we talk a lot about that on this show. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to compare yourself to others uh, only when you want to learn, not in a jealous way. But when you start to compare yourself to where you were, to where you are now, and if you're making progress, that's that's all we're after. So needless to say, I highly recommend these books. And in particular, like I mentioned, the one that worked for me was The Well-Behaved Child. And the one final concept I want to talk to you guys about is the concept of pushing your kids toward independence. 
Um, you know, in the lectures, he talks about how he was doing laundry when he was at some ridiculously young age and, and how his mom taught him to clean floors. And, and after I heard that, I, I just really started to, to think about what I could do uh, with my kids to, to sort of layer that in. I, I've just discovered I was, I was doing way too much um, around the house and doing things for them. And I, and I felt like more of like a servant, just like he said in those lectures. So I was keenly aware of that. And I started to always ask myself the question, is this something my kids could do? So I started to come up with ways to sort of push my kids toward independence. And the, the first thing I, I did was, is their laundry, right? I w- I'd wash their laundry. I would throw it in the dryer. I, w- I would at least do that. But then I would just dump the clean clothes in a big pile in my kid's room. And I just said, put it away. Um, you know, the first time I sort of helped them with the hangers and the drawers and, and, and all that stuff. But, uh, the next few times I just said, do it. And, and of course they, they did it all crazy, you know, clothes hanging off the hangers wrinkly and, you know, everything's out of order. And then afterwards I would go in and sort of, sort of coach them on on how to do that a little bit better. And, you know, within three or four weeks of doing that, they're doing it on their own and fine. And a learning curve has been conquered in that area. So I no longer have to put the kids laundry away. And I kept layering in things like that. And life got uh, a lot easier for me. So now here my kids are six years old and eight years old. And I'm always looking for little ways to sort of make them uh, more independent and push them out of their comfort zone a little bit. And, you know, this is just one of the things I do, whether you want to do it or not, I don't know, but it's, I've seemed to, uh, it seemed to help a little bit, you know, they're nervous at first, but now, now they absolutely love it. So when we go to restaurants, um, I don't care if it's as simple as steak and shake. If we go into steak and shake, we have the kids order their own food. You know, mommy and daddy don't have to order their food. They, they say what they want and they interact with the waiter or the waitress and they order their own food. Um, Sometimes, you know, my, my daughter, she loves Subway. So I'll pull up to a Subway and I'll stay in the car and I'll give her, you know, a $5 bill for the kid's meal and I'll have her walk into the store by herself. I'm obviously looking through the window at her, but I have her go in and order Subway kid's meal by herself. She's pretty simple. She likes turkey and cheese and pickles. And she's kind of got that down and she can order that on her own. And when I first told her to do it by herself, she was really, really scared and she didn't know what to do and she did it and she came out and she was so excited and so proud of herself. So those are just little things that I have done and um, you know, you can steal some of those ideas or, or make some up on your own, but anything that you can do to push your kids toward independence, that's more work for them, uh, a greater sense of accomplishment for them. Uh, you know, you start to build some of that work ethic, <laughs> but the best part is you are doing less work. Um, so that is, that is a good thing. All right. So that's it for this episode. Uh, your homework is basically to do what John Roseman said, man, go home and start a family revolution, man. Talk with your spouse, get a, a game plan and, and attack it. And if you happen to be a single parent, uh, do what you can, uh, stop being a pushover, start using some of these techniques and just stay strong and, um, you know, keep at it until you get some success and, uh, push those kids toward independence and, uh, share this information. And, and you just talk about this with your friends and together you guys can get, um, 
better parenting skills and, and learn some parenting hacks and any, any tricks you come across, just share them with, with people and they'll do the same. And that's, that's how you grow. So go out there, start that family revolution. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.